Welcome back, everyone, and I'm so excited for today's episode with the one and only Ari Paul, the managing partner and CIO of Block Tower, and also an amazing fellow Miamian and friend and crypto winter warrior. Welcome to have you here. Thank you, Felix, and thanks for the nice introduction. Uh, I think this is our second podcast together. We did one with uh, one on Real Vision, so yes, really, really nice. I, I think you and I always have uh, just super flowing, easy, fun conversations about crypto industry markets, you know, when we have dinner. So yeah, uh, exactly. Because yeah. and this is why I want to get you here too, too, because, you know, for me, in a way, like you're kind of like my big brother in crypto, <laughs> where I can always pass, you know, questions by you when it comes to running a firm or trading and so forth. And also just such a treasure trove of wisdom in my eyes when it comes to really going at these markets with a very level head, because, you know, crypto is very full of characters. A lot of people have very staunch opinions. Bitcoin is going to 100,000. Bitcoin is dropping to this price where you are much more, I think, a, a realist, uh, which I think is something we need, especially in times like this. So let me start with this. In a market start for excitement, for right now, everything seems doom and gloom. What's something that excites you? Uh, let's see, I, I've put this message out publicly a lot, and, and so people may have seen it, may be bored of it from me, although uh, we haven't gone in much depth on this yet. So I'd say, you know, real world lending, which I, I think may have even come up in our last podcast. Um, I continue to be really excited about it. I think there's a lot of interesting activity within crypto on the theme, particularly in the MakerDAO community. Mm -hmm. So seeing the evolution of MakerDAO governance is uh, actually I, I have a young analyst who joined my team, and I said if you deep dive into MakerDAO, you kind of have to learn almost everything about crypto in a little mm. bit. Like it, it kind of touches on so many themes from DeFi to stable coins to DAOs to governance, um, and now kind of touching the real world, the regulatory, legal, and ops side. And now we're touching uh, real world assets and you know how to how to value them, how to incorporate them into a crypto world from a composability perspective, a governance, all that. So super excited about it. Um, yeah. So let's 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 unpack that a little bit because you know there's the world, real world in there. There's also lending, and I know recently you know lending in crypto has kind of gone on a fire with things like you know Celsius and so forth. Now real world lending, the way you're looking at it is fully decentralized, so it's on chain, which would probably also solve some of these issues. How do you go about moving real world assets on chain, and like how's the custody of these assets be, being done? All very hard questions. And I, I wouldn't say that using real world assets necessarily solves the problems we just solved from say BlockFi and Celsius, uh, or at least not inherently. Um, mm -hmm. you, mischief can be done with those. Uh, I'm actually, I think you could do exactly the same thing that kind of went wrong with, with those guys. Um, I would actually say, I think MakerDAO was kind of starting to head down that path mm -hmm. of replicating what, what Celsius and Voyager got wrong in the sense of having assets as collateral that are fundamentally very low quality, that are uh, effectively mismarked, that yes. are uh, where you have a time mismatch. So you're, you're locking assets up, you're getting paid for liquidity, but you have uh, short-term deposits from mm -hmm. retail customers who expect to be able to get those back on demand. So almost all of those problems were actually being replicated in MakerDAO. And um, I think MakerDAO is kind of course correcting now. So they kind of realized they were getting picked off. So what was happening was, you know, you have this pile of money and you have a community that is supposed to vote on how to allocate it and that community are not credit experts yeah. and uh, so I've, I've been I'm 38 I've been an investor my whole career I have an MBA CFA all that stuff and I, I never I hate credentialism and I, I never mention that except to say 
despite all of that, I very quickly realized I have no business evaluating a single credit deal. Mm -hmm. Basically, I was looking at the MakerDAO deals. I have no business, even with 100 hours evaluating any of them, because I lacked the, the skills. Um, so what was happening was kind of predatory players were approaching the MakerDAO community and saying, finance my distressed Egyptian power plan at 6%. <laughs> And the MakerDAO community was, in many cases, approving it, or yeah. at least seriously considering it because they, they didn't know better. They thought like, oh, validation, you know, real use cases are using us. Yeah, yeah. And, and they just really had no understanding of the credit world. And, and that's not a criticism of the community. I mean, mm -hmm. the point is, unless you're a professional credit underwriter, you have no business underwriting credit. You know, yes. uh, it doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how generally savvy you are in the investment world. It's, a, it's kind of its own technical skill set, right, of how you uh, assess cash flows and, and, um, and it gets very complex and legal because in credit, a big part of it is what happens in default. What legal rights do you have? How, you know, what literally happens in a default? And, and generally, uh, professional credit investors have a plan to, in some form, take possession of the asset. Mm -hmm. So that distressed Egyptian power plant, you better have oh, a plan <laughs> to either operate it or yes. You have a Rolodex of operators you can hire as third party. You know, you have a plan at least. Correct. Or somebody that will like acquire it if you need to liquidate it somehow. Right. right. Now that it's funny because like that would move us into another topic that I want to like, you know, your mark for later with professional underwriting because it also made me think of things like, you know, Nexus Mutual where people are just staking tokens, technically underwriting insurance when that's a highly technical skill set. The same thing like underwriting credit. Um, but we can tap into that later. Maybe give us a, so I guess the Egyptian power plan is a good example because I was going to, going to ask you, what is an example of reward lending? Uh, maybe you can give me one or two examples of what that looks like. Sure, sure. Um, let's see. So real world lending is kind of, I, I'm thinking of it as a subsector of uh, real world assets. Yep. You know, it, it, kind of the nomenclature works reasonably well here. And so lending is, you're either tokenizing debt, so it could be tokenizing treasury bonds, corporate bonds, or gotcha. more commonly, what's being done is um, kind of lending vaults. So for example, Maple was operating a bunch of vaults, still are operating yep. a bunch of vaults where borrowers like Orthogonal uh, or Block Tower, for example, could mm -hmm. borrow capital. Um, so in a lot of cases, it's either a, it's, it's primary issuance. So someone who has need for capital, either a trading firm or, or in the, in the non-crypto version, it could be, for example, um, any consumer credit company, uh, almost any company, like a small bank, for example, may want to borrow so they can make loans in Latin America. Mm -hmm. Or it could be, for example, uh, so what we're seeing in practice is the time and effort to underwrite individual loans and individual borrowers is kind of prohibitive. And so the models that seem to be catching on to make that a little more scalable are you have a credit underwriter operating a vault. And that underwriter could be a company. So for example, it could be a FinTech 2.0 company that borrows money and then makes a lot of small loans that mm -hmm. are, say, revenue-based lean, uh, revenue liens um, to, say, tech companies, yep. where you're just lending against um, you know, their, annual rep, their, their monthly revenue from customers, new, new onboarding or recurring revenue. Um, or you're lending to funds doing the same. So that's kind of the dominant model right now that TrueFi and Maple are pursuing. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know how this ends up playing out. I'm not really pitching a single model. I hope we get competition and people who say, oh, no, we don't want the intermediaries. We don't need the intermediaries. Great. I have no objection to kind of a more direct model. The danger is just that unscrupulous players will post these borrowing proposals and yeah. the community may not be properly equipped to, you know, to assess them. So I think the way this plays out in practice is very similar to TradFi and, and just basically mm -hmm. life where you have trusted intermediaries who, in this case, you're not trusting them for custodial purposes or trusting with your crypto. You're trusting them as 
professional investors, mm -hmm. and in this case is professional credit investors. And so the idea is, um, I think a handful of players will establish brands as mm -hmm. both investing acumen and also professionalism, trust, skill, you know, all of that. And then uh, those brands will be operating vaults, or they'll be op you know different. I think there'll be different form factors by which they can offer products on platforms. But you'll be lending to those players either in the form of investing in their fund that is an on-chain, decentralized, mm -hmm. fully transparent fund, or it can be like a credit line where you're getting a fixed percentage back. What makes it more attractive for some like somebody in need of credit that would be credit worthy elsewhere? Um, to go through an on-chain vehicle because it's it's it feel at, at the time at current time it still feels like essentially the players that attract are the players that wouldn't be credit worthy in other places you know for example crypto funds probably wouldn't get lent money by traditional banks in most cases maybe not the Silvergate but um, or as you said the Egyptian power plant right totally yeah so I I think we're solving a few different problems here one there's a few billion dollars in crypto that is kind of desperate for safe yield opportunities mm. and doesn't know what to invest in. So it makes no sense, you know, if you're a crypto native project and you just raise $10 million as, you know, a, a series A, mm -hmm. and uh, what do you do with that money? Give it to three hours capital. <laughs> in practice, in practice, a lot did, yeah. Or they give it to Celsius or Voyager or BlockFi yeah. or whoever, and they're doing, you know, they're getting whatever, three or five or 8% back, and they really have no idea what's being done with their money and how it's being gambled with. Uh, and you know, so th there is this demand mm -hmm. where people don't want to leave the crypto ecosystem. They don't want to convert their USDT to USD in a bank. Maybe it's for AML KYC reasons. Yep. Maybe it's you know whatever whatever reasons people have. Um, so one, I think we need to solve that problem and offer people high quality, basically the right products that they that some you know uh, that treasury should be in, which to me is um, probably a diversified, tradfied, boring basket of credit. You know, mm -hmm. we, and it, it's not sexy and it shouldn't be sexy because you're talking about, you know, basically a high yield savings account. Yeah. And a high yield savings account is not BlockFi, Celsius, Voyager, Genesis or or any of that. That's all crypto native, ultra risky stuff. Why take ultra risky crypto native exposure for an 8% return or a 10% return? If you're going to take crazy crypto native exposure, yeah, do it for the five X's, right? Sure. Do it for the, the the reason, you know, that everyone invests in crypto, which is not for a 10% yield. If you want a 10% yield, uh, a lot of safer ways to get that in diversified form from TradFi. Mm -hmm. um, so, okay, so one is we're trying to just take good TradFi products and offer them in, in within DeFi in composable form. And by we, I mean, you know, the industry, everyone yes. is working on this. That's uh, solving a problem for a few billion dollars today. Um, I think you ask a really important question, which is kind of how does this get from zero to one? So, so here's, I, I won't monologue too long in this, mm -hmm. but basically there's the 10-year value proposition yep. that uh, I'm a big believer in, and none of that applies today. And the 10-year value proposition is very similar to tokenizing, say, equities, uh, which is 24-7, uh, unlike, you know, TradFi trading markets, which shut down on weekends and banking holidays and all that. Um, interoperability, so instead of having to be segmented regional exchanges and prime brokers and all of this, you can seamlessly move the asset from one platform to another. Composability, so you can borrow against and yield farm your assets as a retail individual, which TradFi hedge funds can. They, they can if they're basically part of the prime brokerage system, but that's that's not even open to small hedge funds. Yep. You basically need to be like a medium-sized or big, a medium-sized means in TradFi like a billion dollars. Yeah, basically, yeah. if you're not a billion-dollar hedge fund, you can't get a direct ISDA with a prime broker, yep. uh, or it's very hard, and so you kind of are, you're not in that system. Um, so over 10 years, oh, and then, and then cutting out middle and back office costs probably by 80%. 
none of that matters to most people today. So cutting back office costs from 20 basis points a year to five basis points a year, who cares about that, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you care about if you're a pension with you know, hundred billion dollars yeah. of bonds and ten basis points matters in that case. But no one's going to try a brand new, crazy, risky platform to save ten basis points, right? That it's similar to people who said, "Oh, people are going to use Bitcoin to save two percent on a credit card payment." It's like no one's going to adopt crazy new technology to save two percent. There needs to be a much more powerful value proposition. There needs to be a ten x. So in a decade, I think this disrupts the prime brokerage system. It disrupts bond servicing. Um, another comical issue is uh, there's constantly human errors in bond payment flows. Mm -hmm. So I was totally ignorant of this. As part of the research project I've been doing on this over the last year, um, we've talked to a lot of bond fund managers, muni bond funds, pensions, just like everyone in the credit world. And there's a weird pain point that I was unaware of where uh, constantly there's simple back office errors that happen mm -hmm. where you know, a pension is owed a um, million dollars in cash flows from a set of bonds and they get 850K. And what's happening is there's like eight separate companies that act as intermediaries doing different pieces of that. And literally what happens is one team will outsource it to, you know, people in an office in India, Cambodia, whatever, where they're taking a PDF typing it into a spreadsheet, emailing that spreadsheet to another company that then PDF, turns it into a PDF that then emails it to someone else. They then manually type in the numbers. It's like this crazy Rube Goldberg yeah. manual process, which makes no sense. Now, obviously, crypto is not needed to fix that. That could all be fixed by a single you know, interoperable database. But TradFi isn't fixing it, and they haven't over 50 years. If anything, it, it kind of seems to be getting worse with just more of these intermediaries and players, and there's no pressure to fix it. So you know, eventually, um, big cost savings, better transparency, better composability, this is the future. But how do we get there? What's the value proposition over the next three years? So I think it's, uh, one, we need to bootstrap this the way we bootstrap everything in crypto with a little bit of kind of free money coming mm -hmm. from effectively equity. So inflationary tokens, whether that's Bitcoin mining rewards, staking rewards, whatever, um, is, you know, there's inflationary rewards where effectively you're getting paid in the equity of the thing. So inflationary rewards are definitely a small piece of this. Another piece uh, that I think a lot of players are trying to bootstrap with is the cheap capital from players like MakerDAO to mm -hmm. kind of finance this to be able to compete head to head with, say, TradFi credit funds. And then the last piece, and I'm not sure about this, is um, there is an argument that providing... so. Investment grade corporate bonds are serviced very well in TradFi. They get access, they're basically, they're rated securities. You can borrow against them incredibly cheaply within the prime brokerage system. Mm -hmm. You can finance them cheaper than anyone in crypto should be willing to finance it. It's similar to home ownership. So Congress, basically the US government subsidizes mortgages. Mm -hmm. So I don't think crypto can compete on offering mortgages to normal American families because the TradFi version is heavily subsidized, right? right? You can't make money offering a mortgage if you're not subsidized by the US government. So um, what are the niches that are underserved by that system? Basically high yielding non-fungible private debt. So for example, uh, a doctor wants to build a Starbucks, you know, they get a Starbucks license, they wanna build a Starbucks, it's a million dollar construction loan. That currently really, generally can't get rated because the cost of rating a security makes it too burdensome to do for a million dollar offering. Mm -hmm. um, and they're not fungible. So a firm like a BlackRock or a JP Morgan, they don't want their senior credit analysts spending a minute on this million dollar bond offering. Yeah. They have to allocate billions of dollars. And so, you know, you, you try to do the math on that. If you have to underwrite loans one million at a time, and it's real work. So like I have a friend who four person team basically does those million dollar Starbucks type loans. He basically, I asked him, how many people would you need to hire to be able to deploy? If I give you a billion dollars tomorrow to deploy over the course of a year, 
to basically doing what you do all day, which is sourcing these deals primar as, as a primary issuer and then you know doing the diligence and then uh, making the loan. And he said, well, I'd probably need to hire 100 people to be able to do a billion dollars of million dollar loans over a year because it's that time consuming because we do site visits. We physically go to the Starbucks. We're prepared to take possession of it. We're prepared. We have our own contractors to finish construction if the doctor reneges on the deal. And that's what it means to be a professional credit underwriter and do this primary issuance. So um, the point is those deals, because they're less scalable, because they're basically unattractive mm -hmm. to a BlackRock to do, that's our zero to one niche. That's our opportunity where the firms like uh, Trufi, Maple, Centrifuge, Goldfinch, N-Labs, all those guys are saying, we don't need to deploy $10 billion. We're not at that scale yet. Mm -hmm. So let's do a really good job on this underserved niche that the big boys you know, kind of don't care about. That's our zero to one. We, we attract family offices, high net worth individuals to our platform who want to invest in this unusually attractive debt, basically. basically. So if you're a high net worth individual on BlackRock, you don't get a look at this stuff because BlackRock doesn't offer it to you because yeah. they don't have it in their portfolio. So you'd have to go to these kind of small groups like my friend, but they're hard to find, they're hard to underwrite. If you're an individual, how do you, like I, you know, I as an individual wouldn't even know where to start looking for those small teams to find, right. you know, to allocate $5 million to debt like that. So I, it may be that we need to dangle a carrot of some really interesting corporate loans, and maybe that's under an ESG theme or a LATAM startup theme. You know, there may be a little bit of a feel-good, sexy element of we're attracting people to invest in this theme or this region of the world or this cause, and then that is kind of our zero to one. You know, and then we're bootstrapping, building network effects from there. Right. Right, and that actually kind of like guides into that, you know, the, the, the question I was earmarked, you know, these platforms, they, they really are meant to be platforms where, you know, it's not, it's impossible for Maple or TrueFight to personally, you know, vet all the, you know, all, all the deals that come on, like, you know, people that want to get credit um, or to underwrite them. So I, I think I talked to the TrueFight team a while ago and they, they're creating like a whole portfolio manager system where kind of like the Lloyds of London where you can, um, so like, you know, I can run a portfolio and select different credit, uh, you know, debts that I want to, you know, underwrite and people can invest into that vault, so to say. Um, how do you find, how do you find this balance between, you know, open governance, anybody can participate and still having, you know, specialization, the right people in the right seats, you know, because, you know, going back to that example of like Next Mutual, not every staker is smart enough to underwrite insurance. Not every, I think TrueFi, you can also get slashed. Not every, you know, TrueFi staker is smart enough to, you know, understand credit risk. So is this, how, how do we keep this, like, will this just be that the community of those platforms will be all the different people that already work in credit? Or, you know, how do you envision this? I think you'll get a few different models, and I, I don't know which ones will be dominant. Um, probably a few should survive at serving different niches. So a platform that offers loan opportunities to very sophisticated family offices, for example, high net worth individuals, maybe they're just showing individual bonds or individual mm -hmm. loan opportunities. And it's kind of caveat emptor. It's, you know, you're very sophisticated. We assume you know what you're doing coming here. And if you don't know what you're doing, it's probably not a great, it probably won't look like a good platform for you because there's going to be like pages of legal docs and mm. for your review. And, you know, it won't be, the, ideally those platforms shouldn't be geared towards retail. They shouldn't look like they're trying to attract retail deposits. They should look like they're for professionals. Um, and then I think you have uh, kind of a middle ground where it's kind of branded funds. That's kind of, that's how most of the fund management industry works today, where for example, someone says, okay, I, I go to Fidelity, I look at their fund offerings. I can kind of assume that anything in the Fidelity list is at least not a scam, right? Mm -hmm. but whether it's invested well, 
is a separate question, whether sure. it's a smart investment, whether the manager's great, but it's at least trustworthy, right? Yep. Probably. It's vetted enough. It, it's at least, it's somewhat vetted. Yeah. Um, so, and then individual, you know, and then managers fight to brand themselves, you know? So uh, kind of like the mutual fund world, right? Where someone like a Bill Miller builds a track record over 15 years and writes thought leadership essays and tries, you know, convinces people that he's a brilliant investor and then more money flows to him through whatever platform he's on. Um, I think that's a pretty reasonable model. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not saying it's perfect or anything, but that's kind of how the world generally works. We, we have trusted intermediaries who build brands over time. Um, when it's done well, when basically, ideally, uh, the brand matches reality. And you know, people with great track records who are operating professionally are well-regarded and those who aren't are not. The world doesn't always work that way, but, but I think that's kind of as good as we can do. Right. And then the far retail version, probably that's, I would still say that, I would caution retail about that because I'd say uh, the whole mutual fund industry, for example, was basically a shell game conning retail using that psychology. So Mm -hmm. um, like for those who don't know, basically the way the mutual fund industry used to work, there's now regulation against this, is every year they would launch basically a thousand funds. Uh, You know, you'd have one manager running 20 different funds at a random mutual fund company. And then a year later, the 10 that underperformed were shut down, Mm -hmm. another 10 were launched. And so at the end of five years, you're guaranteed to have 20 funds with a stellar five-year track record, and then you market the hell out of those. So um, very simple cherry picking and survivorship bias kind of weaponized against retail. Uh, There's now regulation that makes that a lot harder for mutual fund companies Mm -hmm. to do. But that kind of thing still happens en masse on Wall Street. So the, the, the most retail version would be there's a single trusted brand, that's the platform. You're trusting the platform, and the platform is kind of doing all of this work for you. Um, I think that's gonna happen, and eventually it'll happen successfully. The fear is that we just saw how wrong that went with Celsius, Voyager, and BlockFi. Yeah. All three presented to their customers that basically they were savvy investment professionals with professional risk management, and all three had no idea what they were doing as investors. And I'll say that, I'm not saying that they were bad people, I'm not saying they're not smart people, but um, you know, in, in some cases they were smart as tech entrepreneurs and maybe smart on the technology and smart on the entrepreneurship, right. but uh, basically financially illiterate when it came to actual investing, trading, portfolio management. Um, right. That doesn't have to stay the same, right? Like BlockFi has been hiring, uh, you know, TradFi credit analysts, for example. So I, I hope that firms like this level up their expertise and optimize for security for for the safety of those deposits. There's also a perverse incentive principal agent problem. If you're a BlockFi or Voyager and you're raising VC dollars, um, you're being pushed very hard to maximize deposits. And the mm-hmm. way you do that is by offering the highest yields, higher Correct. than your competitors. And the way you do that is by gambling like crazy and risking ruin with your customer deposits. And so basically, if you as the platform are gonna take on this responsibility of being the fiduciaries, you better do it like a bank. You better do it in a responsible way where you're not gonna lose your depositors' money. And so I think we're, you know, we're approaching an interesting time because like initially, you know, I, I used to believe that everything needs to be decentralized, the future is decentralized. And I still believe that the, I think the ground layer, the infrastructure is what needs to be decentralized. But on top of it, in order for society to function, in order for like a lot of these services to properly function, like you do need trusted third parties to some degree, like underwriters, for example, you say like, hey, I, I myself am not smart enough when it comes to credit, so I don't know which ones to pick, but you know, there are people with track record that can, get, that can back. Now that being said, um, you know, I think the one part that, you know, blockchain, like what something even with real world lending and DeFi brings to the table is 
an added layer of transparency. So for example, like if we had known what what exactly Celsius does with a book, you know, if we knew what Blockboy was doing with a book, like, look, if, if you play GBTC and I understand GBTC and you tell me that you do GBTC, great. Then like, I, I, know, I know what risks I'm signing up for or that, you know, every single one of the ETH is in stake ETH and I know there's not enough liquidity, great. But a lot of this stuff happened behind closed doors. So do you think, you know, would something like, you know, Maple even, or TrueFi, it doesn't matter the player, enable there to be more, I guess, transparency with, you know, yeah, organizations so- like that. I guess one, and one last caveat is because, you know, to some degree you, you want privacy, like as, as an institution, cause like, let's say in a hedge fund world, for example, like I don't want to publicly display my book 24 seven, you know, so for example, we, we backed Enzyme, which does that. But at the same time, I'm like, eh, do I want everybody to know my short position? Probably not. So where is that middle ground? Um, so first on the privacy point, something that uh, Zuko Wilcox's eCash always emphasizes, and I think just does so articulately, um, is privacy doesn't mean opacity, it mm. means choice. So our medical records legally have to be private and legally have to be shared with the government. And currently that's done in insecure form from an IT sense, because mm. often those records are badly or not at all encrypted. But my point is that uh, in an ideal world, your medical data is perfectly encrypted using yep. ZK snarks or whatever you know is best best in practice. And it's trivial, it's, it's super easy for you to reveal that to your medical provider, to uh, anyone who legally has to see it, mm-hmm. um, but no one else can see it, right? No one can see it without your permission or, or you know, whatever entity is in question. So privacy is always a win in my book, and then we can decide who should, you know, selective disclosure, who needs to see this, who should see it. Uh, but I'm, I'm all for everything being default private, and then ideally things are selectively disclosed. And ZK proofs enable some really cool stuff where, for example, a platform can prove its solvency without having to divulge any specifics. Mm-hmm. And the math works. Um, right. To my knowledge, there's not a single platform utilizing that kind of math uh, in, in any kind of holistic sense. But I think we'll get to a point where, for example, um, a platform like a Voyager block by Celsius or whatever can kind of basically prove their deposits and, and their loans outstanding and that things are in repayment without having to necessarily reveal the identity of every borrower. And that, that that's interesting and pertinent to right now because, you know, the whole situation with Three Arrows from what I've, I've gathered was that, you know, none of the lenders wanted to talk to another that they had this big client that was, you know, giving them all this business. So nobody talked with one another. And pretty much, you know, Three Arrows had, let's say, a certain sum of capital, went to lender one, said, hey, we have this amount of capital, can you lend us some money? They lend the money. Now they go to lender two. And now if they got their original money and the lender's money, hey, can you lend us some money? And so if this is done on chain, you know, with privacy, for example, like you could, you know, none of the counterparties could know of each other, but you could perhaps see how much debt has this player already acquired. Yeah, this doesn't, uh, crypto doesn't perfectly solve this, but I think like with some social pressure can help. So. Um, here's why crypto doesn't perfectly solve it. So if I have a set of assets um, and I borrow against those assets in DeFi, let's say on Aave, uh, Mm -hmm. I can then still go to a TradFi bank, let's say, and borrow, and then I can borrow, I can, so so here's the problem. Um, I'd frame it this way. You need a limited search space. So the problem of someone borrowing from multiple counterparties against the same collateral the only way to solve that is if everyone agrees there's a set of people who have all the information. Mm. And that there's no way to enforce that really in practice in the sense that like, maybe I make that promise to my bank that I haven't loaned my capital to anywhere else, but I go to the neighborhood loan shark and I loan it, you know? Sure. And 
So it doesn't perfectly solve it. Um, in the trad, this is a problem in the TradFi system uh, extensively. We saw this with Archegos. Mm-hmm. Archegos just did basically with three arrows did to Genesis. Archegos just did to Credit Suisse, mm-hmm. where they had you know a set of collateral and they borrowed from multiple prime brokers. And the prime brokers weren't talking, which is crazy to, to me, by the way, from a regulatory perspective. Um, it's bizarre that regulators haven't basically forced the prime brokers to be kind of sharing that information in some form. I, I'm actually curious, frankly, why they didn't because generally that like that aligns with my mental model of who regulators protect which is they protect the prime brokers yeah. basically the, the, the uh, there's just a um i think it was this sec was it the sec maybe no it was multiple regulators just find banks like a billion dollars mm-hmm. for uh text for using signal and whatsapp on personal devices and not recording that at the firm level and it was an unusually large fine. And the public coverage, like Wall Street Journal said, like, look at this unusually large fine. Basically, when banks rip off customers, they get a $10 million fine. When they hide communications from regulators, they get a billion dollar fine. Why? Because that's taking power away from regulators. Sure. Screw your customers, small fine. Take power away from the regulators, big fine. So uh, I'm, I'm kind of surprised because um, protecting the prime brokers from the likes of Archegos is kind of a primary role of the regulators, is, you know, at least how it plays out. Um, so I'm surprised that hasn't been implemented. But basically what, what you'll be able to say with confidence is this collateral that's, pe- that's pledged in the DeFi ecosystem, it's completely transparent what recourse there is against that collateral. So like Celsius you know, uh, was just repaying their loans on Aave because they had to, because they were over collateralized yeah. loans and to get the cl- collateral back and anyone's able to look at the smart contract and see exactly how that works. Um, So I think we'll head into a world eventually where everyone is checking all of these public sources and the private sources are kind of, you know, at least the biggest private sources are Mm -hmm. integrated into that and are talking to each other. Um, But yeah, that won't perfectly solve it. But you outside of that system don't have to be a lender. Like you never have to be hurt by anyone's malfeasance on this. You can just say, I'm only lending to you through an Aave-like platform where you have to post more than 100% collateral, for example. Um, the players who got hurt here were the ones who got hurt out of greed, right? They, they had capital, they wanted to earn incremental yield. They could have said, we're only lending to you in collateralized form three arrows, but that wasn't good enough, right? They wanted to, three arrows, I'm sure said, hey, you know, we wanna borrow a marginal $300 million at 8%, that's 2% more than anyone else is gonna give you and you have to do it uncollateralized. And greed, you know, um, so basically greed's always gonna exist and people are always going to be able to choose to make bad decisions like that. Um, crypto won't fix that. So, you know, un- un- until it is fixed, and I know with the, on the VC side, you back a lot of prop tech. I think we, we talked about this before. What can depositors and investors do to kind of make sure that they don't fall for the next, you know, Celsius, BlockFi, Voyager, and so forth? I mean, for me, I always say like, ask where the yield comes from. I think that's a great place to start. Um, but you know where where do you, where do you see the differences like whether it's operationally, um, leadership wise, and so forth? Uh, I'll give my general answer and then my specific one. My general answer will have everyone's eyes rolling because uh, it's it won't, doesn't feel that helpful, but it's my genuine. I, I think this is actually what everything comes down to, which is, um, you know, in crypto and bull markets at least, money feels free and it mm. feels like tokens, right? It feels like playthings. It feels people have millions of dollars uh, in tokens or NFTs or whatever. It doesn't feel like real money. They don't treat it like real money. So step one is treat it like real money. If you're putting it out there, if you're lending it, um, be serious about that. Have you researched who you're lending, you know, a meaningful chunk of money to? Um, And kind of just first principles, common sense, like what does it mean to lend money and hope you get it back? What is that money being used for? 
how what is the financial health of the entity borrowing it have you looked at so like i'll say this for myself um i almost can't imagine ever lending money other than like in a friendly context right where i'm lend i've lent money to personal friends uh, without asking for a balance sheet of mm. course but you know if i'm lending to a company or an arm's length individual in a commercial context i'm i want to see financial statements i want to mm. see cash flows i want to see if i'm lending it to a trading firm you got to walk me through basically exactly what you're doing uh and what, what ends up happening is the, the, the borrowers say no, and Three Arrows says no, and then what do you do? Well, my answer is I just don't loan. Mm. I, I forego the yield. So I can tell you, like, for I and Block Tower, um, we left a lot of money on the table in DeFi summer and since. Uh, we mostly don't lend our assets out, and that's cost us, right? There, there's, there were people who were making 10% on their capital when we were sitting on it doing nothing. Yeah. Um, you have to be willing to do that. You have to be willing to say, if no one is going to give me the proper information for me to be confident that, that something's a good trade, a good investment. It's kind of like if an entrepreneur comes to you and says, uh, I'm not gonna give you any information because I have people who are willing to write me a million dollar check without it. <laughs> that happens, right? Yeah, it happens course. in bull markets where entrepreneurs, you know, every VC is banging out their door. They, it's some sexy theme, they have like, a good you'll reputation. You'll have 24 hours to write me a check. Right, right. And, and you're lucky that I'm even giving you the, the wire information, the, right. right? The answer is you don't invest. And you might miss the next Facebook, but you know, if, if you're worrying about missing the next Facebook, you're going to end up losing your money to UST or, or, or Celsius. Or, you know, so that's number one. So, okay, but now let me give some spe <laughs> a few specifics. Um, the model of BlockFi, Celsius, and Voyager was never valid. It, it's a money-losing business model. It never made sense at all as a business model. So I would start by saying um, yield is not like, I, I'd go this far, like the concept of yield is almost broken in crypto. Like when, when people say yield in crypto, what do they mean? Well, either it's like DeFi yields, which typically came from inflationary tokens, mm -hmm. which weren't yield. It, for, for anyone here who's like a derivative trader, it's kind of the equivalent of saying, um, this is not the best example because not that many of your listeners are, are kind of fluent in options, but basically unsophisticated people will say something like, I just sell a put on the S&P 500 or on Bitcoin every month and I collect yield. And you're not actually collecting yield. So yes, you're receiving cash flows for selling that put every month, but if the put is priced fairly, you're not making or losing money. Mm. Right, so it's kind of like saying, actually- here, Ultimately you are the yield and you know, cause it's a negative skew where one out of 10 times, like nine out of 10 times you make money, but then the one tenth time comes, and you might give back way more than that, which is kind of similar mm -hmm. with the, the 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 rates they were paying. If you're getting nine percent in your stables, do you think there's a chance that one out of eleven years you're going to lose money on this platform? If yes, then it's it's a, it's a horrible risk reward scenario. Yes, and but going even further, where where is the yield actually coming from? Like like, and I mean this in the deepest deepest kind of conceptual sense. So yield in the real world in TradFi and in frankly just life is you have something productive happening. So I'm a bank, I lend money to a business that is building a factory. The factory, if things go reasonably well, increases production, they sell more chairs, there's more cash flow coming in, they pay back the loan with interest. Everyone wins, right? Everyone is richer as a result of that because the cash that I lent financed investment or productive activity yep. that'll increase production, that increase cash flow, everyone won. There didn't need to be a loser in that kind of set of transactions. Um, the problem in crypto is there's almost no actual source of productivity for these things. And so uh, if I lend my Bitcoin to someone, what can they do with it that creates more Bitcoin or more dollars? 
there aren't many answers. So you could say, well, it could be a Bitcoin miner who's going to build mining facilities. And that's true. And that could be the case. Uh, but worth noting that Bitcoin mining is fundamentally zero sum. Mm -hmm. That if there's $100 billion poured into Bitcoin mining, on average, that can't produce more wealth for the world. Not directly, at least, mm -hmm. right? Uh, in a first, because they're all, all those miners are of competing. They're competing for the same inflationary rewards. You could argue that could help price, push the price of Bitcoin up. And, you know, so there may be second order effects. But um, so really, the only source of demand to borrow crypto was by speculators, mm -hmm. by traders. So market making shops, uh, people like Three Arrows who were doing, you know, levered spread trades or DeFi yield farming or whatever. Um, and if you think about it, so it's literally the only reason for that anyone was borrowing crypto, it, some slight exceptions to this, but tiny, was really they were market makers in the casinos or they were speculators in the casinos. And both of those are zero sum, right? Mm -hmm. Ultimately, I mean, during a raging bull market, everyone can be making money because there's new money coming in. But at the, at the end of the day, there's zero sum. So the fundamental problem here is everyone was hungry for yield in crypto and there was basically no real yield in crypto that even the, um, the the things that there's nothing wrong. So like, let's take ETH staking, right? Nothing wrong there, transparent, open source. I'm not, you know, criticizing it at all, but it's not like, for, it's not like wealth is being created, right? So what's happening is um, at the margin, there's more ETH being created to reward stakers and mm -hmm. that devalues all ETH. And that can be part of a healthy, productive, secure ecosystem. Right? Can um, so that idea can absolutely make sense as a way of securing the system potentially and therefore, you know, help ETH have a lot of value. But the point is, it's not yield. It's it's moving money around to incentivize, you know, offering security or something like that. So here's the reality. Um, anyone telling you they're going to give you yield on USD or on crypto in like within the crypto industry, uh, it's probably a broken business model or a Ponzi, not necessarily a scam, but an accidental Ponzi where it just you know, you're forced to do what these lenders did and basically gamble with deposits. And my objection to that at its most basic is, because uh, like Felix, you and I kind of do that professionally. Mm -hmm. We take capital from other people and we, I'd like to think, I, I wouldn't use the word gamble, but we're gambling with it, right? We, we're, we're doing it in an educated way. Mm -hmm. We're doing it in a risk managed way. We're doing it in a way where uh, certainly we hope we win more than we lose and, and we have historically, but, um, the key difference is one i hope we're both transparent with people you know giving us capital to do that very transparent about the risk we're taking the fact that they could lose all of their you know uh every dollar they're giving us we could lose and i try to walk people through yeah. how um and they're sharing in the upside right so if, if they're taking a risk of total loss but they could get a 2x or 5x or 10x on the money. We're not capping it at 7%. We're not capping it at 7%. If if someone said, you know, Ari, I want to invest with Block Tower or with Felix, uh, and, it, you know, I take the full risk of your, of your strategies, but the most I can get is 7%, I'd say run. That's a horrible product. Yeah. Horrible. It's insane. Um, and then someone might push back and say, but there's a lot of credit, you know, TradFi credit products where, you, you know, they do have capped upside. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's when the risks being taken in those funds are so comically trivial. Um, so I think one thing that crypto people didn't get, I had some pushback even after Celsius mm -hmm. blew up. I had like some Celsius shills kind of debating me on Twitter and someone was saying like, Ari, like what are you talking about that this was unsustainable or Pongeous or, or you know, not, not valid? Isn't this what like banks do? It's lending. 
there's a huge difference between professional lending where you're lending against, you know, you're lending to Microsoft against revenue and you're doing extremely detailed analysis even there, yeah. even lending against Microsoft where you're looking at you're looking at their balance sheets and financial statements in detail. You're, you know, you're doing channel checking, diligence, you're making sure that there's you're checking legal filings to make sure the assets aren't encumbered. Yeah. All of that versus what what we've seen where, you know, with it's three hours. Like, right. It's, we it's, just saw it today. It's like what's your what's your nav? We have two thousand three hundred in millions. Yeah. Signed, Kyle Davis. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the difference between shooting a like shooting a bullet and throwing it. Mm. Like it's it's conceptually in the same direction. They're both lending, but it's so night and day. And yeah. basically, if you if you're not confident that you can tell the difference, which is very reasonable by the way. I'm not trying to insult people who aren't credit experts. I'm not, you know I I know I've spent a lot of years studying credit, and I'm yeah. still not a credit expert, so obviously I don't expect the average doctor to be a credit expert. Point is, if you can't tell the difference easily between those two, if anything I just said sounds at all confusing, then don't take the risk. Right. You don't have to invest in every, you know, there's a million niches and sectors and industries I don't invest in because I have no idea what I'm doing. And the, the, the perverse thing is that, you know, people kind of, they, they think things are conservative if the offering looks conservative, right? So for example, if there is a 100,000% APY on Olympus, they're like, well, this is a Ponzi, right? But when they say, hey, we're only paying you 7%, then could be fair, must be fair, right? But even then you need to ask, like I, I, I had a, in another podcast with Shilang from Ledger Prime where we talked about, for example, like BlockFi early days, like 6% on Bitcoin, who pays you 6%, right? It's, it's as simple as that. Uh, let's rotate into something else. Uh, you know, I remember we sat together at dinner one time and we kind of discussed our approaches, you know, value versus momentum. And I know you are, you lean more heavily on the side of momentum where you, you said something, some rough quote, you know, when it comes to value investing in crypto, it's not like Warren Buffett will buy your, you know, Aave tokens because their PE ratio is low. Um, now you do seem to see value in real world lending, but, you know, kind of walk us through your overall perspective of the crypto markets. Like how do you, you know, momentum versus value and with momentum, you know, how do you play? Because I know there's a whole, we, we, can, we can get in musical chairs in a little bit, but let's start with that. Yeah, so the problem with value in crypto is that almost everything is close to entirely circular. So I'll use an example of a project that, um, disclosure, I'm currently long it, um, not in huge size, but uh, I'm long it, uh, and that I like fundamentally, mm -hmm. and I, I'm happy to hold up to anyone who's criticizing the crypto industry, and mm -hmm. that's Uniswap. So Uniswap is, I think of, as one of the most fundamental value-oriented crypto assets in the sense that a uh, very simple model, not at all Ponzi-ish in the sense that, you know, it's a DEX, no people get value for using it. I mean, a very clean history, mm -hmm. the way they did an airdrop and non-ICO, all of that. But not even talking about that, just clear product that people derive value from, yep. clear cash, basically potential cash flows, potential. right? Clear reason the token could have value, which is very equity-like in theory, mm -hmm. uh, that at some point token holders could vote themselves the exchange fees being paid. Um, so you can value it like equity. Um, in the sense, you know, you can look at, at basically those potential cash flows. The problem is that the only thing Uniswap is used for is speculation on cryptocurrencies. Mm. And so as we've seen, um, you know, in the last six months, TVLs, exchange volumes, everything has plummeted. Yep. And it, you know, call it down, let's say 70 to 80%, exchange yep. volumes, TVLs generally. There's nothing that prevents that from falling 90% again. So as an example, actually, I, I was chatting with an analyst today who said something like, um, actually, I'll name the project. We were talking about Steppen, the move to earn game yes, that, uh, you know, had a pretty fantastic valuation recently and, and is still trading at pretty still high valuation. Still about $5 billion. And, um, 
he actually asked, it was a very similar, he asked me something like, like, is there a price where you would call this value? And my answer was kind of like, there is one, I'd have to do some work. I don't have one off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. I would have to do more work in, in, you know, in it fundamentally looking at things like uh, daily usage and the financial statements and all of that. But the problem is kind of what we saw with Axie Infinity. Mm -hmm. It's not, people throw out, well, maybe this thing won't keep growing parabolically. So a conservative assumption is that growth dies and it just maintains current usage and revenue. That's what people were saying six months ago yeah, about yeah. Axie Infinity. About that's what people were saying about Coinbase uh, when it went, you know, when it went public. And the reality is, that's not conservative. Conservative is it falls ninety nine percent fundamentally. The usage falls ninety. You know, and that's I don't know the exact numbers on Axie, but I believe usage numbers are down more than ninety five percent. Yeah, I mean, I think they peaked in the millions of users, and they're down to like nine thousand daily active users. There, the NFT volumes went from three hundred sixty million in August of last year to last month june they made two hundred thousand dollars um so yeah. yeah so revenues in the gutter user numbers in the gutter um, so that's the problem with prices. value right if, if anyone who threw out a value number for axie infinity six months ago would have done it based on current or recent his past fundamentals usage revenue numbers all of that and then even if they thought they were being conservative they might have said well let's say this falls by half or 75 percent and that still wasn't anywhere near conservative enough and and really what we're saying here is that there's very little predictability to mm. usage and cash flows of these crypto products and assets. Um, very little stickiness of the user base that very often the fundamentals are being massively pumped, artificially pumped by incentives. incentives yeah. And so without those incentives, things often fall 100% in yeah. terms of usage or extremely close, you know, 99.5%. And um, so how do, how do you think about value in that light? Well, I think you still can. So. At some price point, you say, well, even if every user left, is there still value in the tech they built, the brand, the team, that kind of thing? So, you know, even if we have the deepest imaginable crypto bear winner, uh, if the Uniswap team was still hard at work, still head in the game, still focused, I'd say there's some value to that team and that property and that brand. Um, it's a low value, though. It's not, you know, it's it, not 10 billion. No, it's probably, you know, it might be 20 million or something. Uh, you know, if we're talking about a Uniswap with no users, sure. to be clear, to, just to, yeah. I, I'm gonna have a bunch of people saying, Ari says Uniswap's $20 million. You know, just to be clear, I'm talking about a scenario where Uniswap has basically zero users. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, that there's still, I would still pay for Uniswap even in that state, but you know, it's just a very low number. Got you. Okay. Yeah. No. I. I. I'm. I'm. I'm very much on the same page with you. You know, some of the names you mentioned, I've, we're, we're we're actively shorting, because um, you know the th the funny thing with Stepin too is that the you know people paid a lot of money to get these shoes, they walk, they get GST, and they you know there's some sinks in there. Like for example, like you can you know upgrade your shoes with GST, but like the more the GST token falls, the more they need. So now like you know there's users complaining. Well. When I first signed up, you know, it might have taken me, let's say, three months to make my money back. Now it's going to take me 50 years. Um, you know, th those exaggerations. But the, the point is, the you know, what I've noticed in crypto, there's a lot of flywheels, and the flywheels that make things go up in the bull market, the same mechanisms is what tears them down in bear market. Same thing, you know, Luna's, you know, Luna's whole mechanism is what drove it from 20 cents to 100 dollars, and then right back down to zero. Um, so understanding that value is very, on one hand, reflexive, and also like value can be kind of like a lagging indicator that's kind of like drawn by incentives where, yes, today, let's say Axie, as of August 2021, was a high, incredible value investment to PE ratio or not, right? But short time frame. You seem to be really into momentum. So how, how do you, view, you think about momentum, especially when crypto, you know, 
let's just take a look at, for example, Kaleo ones. Layer ones last year, I think, were a great example of that, where we had a little bit of musical chairs where January 2021, Binance Smart Chain, April, Polygon, late summer, Solana, Luna, and, and the show goes on. So how do you identify momentum and when is the right time to leave? Uh, yeah, it's, it's funny, my, my, by nature, I'm much more of a value investor. Um, getting, really? When I was okay. getting into crypto, you know, professionally, uh, it was obvious these are momentum assets. And I like yelled at myself, like, you know, you can't try to be Warren Buffett here. You're gonna, you're gonna, that's gonna end in tears. Um, you know, a lot, I, I would go this far. I think most investors, including some very smart people who try to approach crypto fundamentally in a true fundamental sense, um, have been very disappointed. Yep. You know, the, the best tech usually doesn't win. And frankly, I don't think this is that different from tech investing generally, sure. which is that, like, wh what do we mean by fundamentals even? Um, it, actually, as a fun anecdote, there, there was a, God, I forget the name of it. I, I was friends with a couple entrepreneurs, very young guys in 2017, who built a dashboard to screen all cryptocurrencies according to like 400 fundamental variables. Mm -hmm. It was early for its time. They were very smart guys. Um, and then I ended up hiring one of them a couple years later. And we like, we, we, he basically hadn't looked at his dashboard in like three years and we compared <laughs> it. And the correlation was zero. It was zero between the fundamentals they had identified with these 300 variables that were yeah. pretty smartly done. They tried to, you know, everything you could think of, they tried to incorporate and just basically zero correlation. Um, part of that is because. It, it's what what do we mean by fundamentals, right? What it, is it? Uh, so someone might say, well, fundamental means um, the quality of the coding, right? Mm. Someone else might say, why does that matter? The fact that uh, Bitcoin was originally coded very sloppily. Yeah. So Satoshi wasn't a great coder and mm -hmm. the code was kind of poorly written. It worked well enough. The fact that it was poorly written didn't end up mattering that much. Mm -hmm. um, it worked, you know, and, and it had some critical bugs. They got patched. So it, it can be a case of looking at for the wrong fundamentals. Um, and then it's also, unless you're looking at a five plus year time frame, those flywheels you mentioned mean mm -hmm. that in any given year, it's the flywheels that are driving things. So, uh, you know, it, I don't, there's some investments that I'll make, you know, with a five plus year time frame. And, um, you know, on the VC side, we sometimes, I sometimes write checks where I'm like, I truly don't care about this over the night. You know, this is a 10 year bet kind of thing. Yeah. But unless you're doing that, if, unless you're being honest with yourself that, you know, this is a 10-year bet and you don't care what happens in the middle, um, you have to care about the flywheels. You have to, the, the noise from the trading, the noise from the speculation is so much more powerful than the signal from the fundamentals, right? We routinely see mid-cap assets 30x and then fall 98%, right? That happens every couple of years. Mm -hmm. And so let's say the signal from the fundamentals in that was a 3x. Well, that's getting completely overwhelmed by the, yeah. the trading noise. Um, it'd be the equivalent of like if Microsoft stock was swinging like 20% every day for just idiosyncratic noisy reasons. It would almost be stupid to try to like predict the next earnings release because, okay, if you're right on the earnings release and that produces a 10% rally, that's just lost in the noise, right? So um, if you're a trader in crypto, if you're optimizing over like a quarterly or annual time frame, I think you have to be... Not necessarily a momentum trader, but but at least more of a trader in that sense. Uh, and so, what I mean when I say um, that that I do a lot of momentum trading, I don't really mean it in a uh, that these terms can mean a lot of things in different contexts. Right. Like in TradFi equity, like Cliff Asnes, if he says value and momentum, he means quant factors. Mm -hmm. He means formal risk premia that are like statistical factors. Um, usually, if traders are talking, they mean more like are you playing for breakouts? Are you playing you know ranges of mean reversion kind of thing? 
Um, I mean it almost meta to that. I mean it more like um, trying to understand. Um, I'm usually betting on one of two things. I'd say these are the things I've historically been best at betting at. I try. I bet on a lot of other things too, but I'd say these are kind of the things I've I've shown some skill at, which is. One, betting on trends of cash flows. So mm -hmm. for example, in 2020, the marginal dollar coming into crypto were high net worth uh, billionaires, basically. It was Western Hemisphere billionaires, people like Michael Saylor, who yeah. then convinced Elon Musk and Tesla to buy at the end of 2020. Paul Tudor Jones. Paul Tudor Jones. And they were buying mostly Bitcoin, and they were buying on uh, basically three exchanges during US business hours. And basically, when we saw that happening, we, could, we kind of said, this is going to be a six-month trend. This is, yeah. These cash flows are going to be coming in. And we don't need to wait to see the trend on the price chart. We can buy the momentum basically the first day we see the cash flows. Mm. And it's still a momentum bet, even though Bitcoin might be sitting at its lows, you know, even though there's no actual momentum on the chart yet, we're betting on the, the, the momentum of the order flow basically. Um, and then thematic momentum. So uh, betting on, you know, the crypto world is getting excited about DeFi and VCs and institutions are all getting excited about DeFi that's probably going to produce some positive flywheels. And that's probably going to be a, you know, one to two year kind of trend. Mm -hmm. And basically we want to buy in aggressively. We want to be playing this from the long side in every way. Uh, and then at some point when it starts feeling bubblish, you start looking for a way out. Oh, um, so are you saying like, because I, I know DeFi has been in perhaps the longest winter. DeFi started the winter like a year early. I, it sounds like between real world lending and Uniswap, you are mostly bullish on DeFi compared to other segments. Because I, I, I remember you did say that things were overheated in like metaverse and whatnot. Yeah, um, let's see. So three months ago, I would have said, uh, I kind of don't want to look at DeFi. It's not done with its bearer yet. And the stuff that was sexy in Q4, I should have been aggressively shorting. I didn't. Um, mm. we, I just said like, like, this stuff's toxic. Let's not touch it for a year. Um, basically, when a bubble bursts, you usually don't want to look at it for a pretty long time, longer than you think. And I was pretty confident the Q4 sexy themes like um, Metaverse were just like very classic end of bull cycle bubble where the, it, it, unlike with DeFi, like so, so in my mind at least, DeFi summer started with something real, then you added the inflationary incentives, the flywheels. And then by like middle of last year, we had kind of the DeFi 2.0 stuff that were small incremental improvements, you know, people raising it. It was like, hey, we're going to fork this Ethereum thing onto mm -hmm. AVAX, give us 100, you know, 100 million valuation. Yep. And people did. And so you had this like incredible inflation in projects, right? Sucking up VC dollars, everyone kind of trying to do their own inflation rewards. Um, but you had something more fundamentally substantive there in the unis and Aves and compounds uh, earlier. And it was a little bit more of a kind of drawn out. Whereas the meta stuff to me, um, I was pretty confident it was going to be a short-lived bubble and would just die hard because there's so little of substance there from my view um mm -hmm. stuff like crypto voxels and sandbox is so far from <laughs> having product market fit to me 100 that uh i'm not saying they're bad projects or bad teams or anything it's just i look at them and i'm like i don't even see a path to this having 20,000 daily active users Correct. who are not paid to use it so um yes yeah, so that was kind of my pessimism where something like uniswap i thought okay this can crash but at some point in the next year this is an obvious value. This is something where people will look to buy value because there's a proven sustainable value proposition there. There's some degree of proven product market fit, even if that was 10X inflated or 20X inflated. There's still a, a somewhat healthy kind of kernel here that means that you know at a 
few hundred million valuation, it, there should be value buyers, and it, it should be hard to sustain, you know, much below that for long. Obviously, that would be—I don't know where Uniswap's trading right now, but th that would be pretty far lower than here. I'm not, I'm not trying to like suggest a price, but um, I actually don't have much of an opinion on DeFi here. Uh, the DeFi 2.0 stuff, I probably still wouldn't touch for a long time. Anything that bounces is, is probably a dead cap bounce. But the stuff like Uni and Ave. Um, maybe the bottom's in. Uh, I, we have small positions in both. Um, it, it, it's not a super aggressive bet. It's not a thematic bet. Um, frankly, there's kind of small bets. I wouldn't, uh, it's not super high conviction. Mm. Um, and I say that those are great projects. Uh, I mean that more in a trading sense. Of, you know, is this, is this the right time to buy, the right price to buy? I kind of have no idea. But I do think they're fundamentally sound buys, you know, for the next two, three years. Um, the real world lending thing, I have no sense of timing. I'm not chilling people that these assets are gonna, you know, 3X their money in the next three months or anything. In my head, these are, um, this theme is a 10 year bet for me, truly. Yeah. And I like truly, everything I'm doing, everything Block Tower is doing on this theme is optimizing over a 10 year horizon, which sounds absurd, right? All of crypto is barely. Yeah. Um, but it's even showing up in our concrete decision making where like we see opportunities to be predatory with some of these protocols in the way I kind of described mm -hmm. people are doing. And um, aside from the ethical side, it, we're not even thinking about it from the commercial side, which is basically we're, we, the way we optimize over the next decade is by building a reputation of being really, really friendly partners to these protocols yeah. who, you know, we're the furthest thing. Not only are we not gonna pick you off, we're gonna like open source everything we're doing. We're gonna tell you our exact profit margins. Like we go to MakerDAO and we say, please make us a loan at this rate. We're gonna tell you what the fair rate would be. And we're going to say, yes, you're, we want you to loan us at one and a half percent below market. Um, you know, we got to make money too kind of thing. So we hope to go above and beyond. And that's going to cost us, right? Our less scrupulous or less friendly colleagues will make that same proposal to MakerDAO and mislead them a little bit and get a cheaper cost than us. But um, so yeah, very long-term theme. On the assets themselves, I'm certainly hoping they work faster than that. Um, the reality is that it I have no idea if any of these protocols will exist in 10 years. I have mm. no idea if Maple or Centrifuge or TrueFi or anything. I mean, 10 years is it's a lifetime in this industry. Crypto. So, you know, we have a basket of real world lending assets that frankly is most of the credible ones. Um, and I'd say I'm, I'm, I'm pretty confident that's going to be a, you know, attractive basket over the next two, three years. Uh, I think if crypto is sideways, it's one of the very few growth areas that I see in crypto. It's one of the very few kind of fundamental growth areas over the next two years. There's some others, but not that many. Um, yeah. it, there aren't that many things I'm excited about fundamental growth in over the next year in crypto. Because even in pockets like D-Web, like let's say AR Weave and Helium and so forth, while they, they are seeing growth, I mean, their ratios of price versus earning it's just it's just wildly off. I think you know AR is like five thousand or something like that. And even of the millions of AR wave tokens that exist, I think only thirty thousand are staked. So there's a very little usage compared to where they are valued at right now. Whereas with real world lending, if Maple and so forth are already down to like let's say sixty hundred million dollar market caps, you know we may be closer to a floor than a lot of assets. Yeah, I think, and the math is pretty attractive, which is I'm pretty confident we're going to, basically, if nothing goes wrong, I think there's a few billion dollars in TVL on this theme in 12 to 24 months. Mm -hmm. um, maybe it takes a little longer than that, but basically, you just need a few players like us. Basically, if, if I've done my homework correctly and the value proposition is there that I think there is, it only takes a few players like us to productize that mm -hmm. and bring billions of dollars in and then... You know, pretty confident that if a centrifuge is a billion dollar TVL, that the market cap will probably be at least a sizable fraction of that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think for good reason too. I would I would argue that that's a fundamentally sound valuation. I don't think we're. I'm not. I certainly hope that I get the chance to exit into a bubble on this theme. <laughs> frankly, look, hey, I'm a trader. I'm gonna you know I'll I'll be real, but uh, I'm not counting on it. You know, uh, I, I I think. I'm hoping for 10Xs on this theme over the next two years without any appreciation in multiple. Like, so you'd use mm-hmm. a TradFi analogy, you have like, what are the cash flows for this company? And then what multiple is the market sure. giving those cash flows? Um, obviously, I'm hoping that in a bull market, you get the multiple expansion, but uh, not that's really not the bet. The bet is that the fundamentals will 10X over the next two years. Nice, fundamentals from Ari. Um, let me ask you this, um, how do you chain dominance? I know like last year, layer ones were a huge topic, you know, from, Again, we mentioned a lot of you know Solana, rest in peace, Luna, you know Polygon. We've got rollups coming up. I don't know how deep you are into, you know, scaling solutions and also layer ones. How how do you view? It? Do you think ETH will get disrupted, or is it now with the merge coming up? You know, everything's going back to ETH. What's your take? I don't think everything. Uh, okay, so first, um, I think Solana's positioned pretty well. So disclosure: we're long ETH and Solana. Uh, so I, but, but actually I'm not, I'm not really talking my book here. Like our Solana position is not big enough for me to be shilling it, frankly. Um, I think the changes the team is making now and has been started making a few months ago to basically fix the protocol so it wouldn't keep going down, mm-hmm. uh, are very likely to succeed. I say that as a non-technical guy who mm-hmm. isn't ultra in the weeds on the tech, but basically the, the whole chain kept halting for pretty simple reasons. One of those reasons was a fundamental design flaw, which is that uh, the Solana team was so adamant around this idea of infinite bandwidth that they didn't have an auction market for block space, which inevitably broke the chain. Like that was obvious from day one, should mm-hmm. have been obvious. Um, I, I'm not trying to beat up on the team. Everyone has blind spots and, and the team has executed pretty, you know, quite well, I think overall. But um, that, that was ob- obvious something that was gonna have to change at some point. And so the network started getting congested and they were a little bit slow to realize kind of what they needed to do to fix it, but they're fixing it. Um, and then, and then there's some other kind of like relatively minor engineering glitches they had to work out on the communication layer and, and the way data stored, but it's all fixable and it seems like they're fixing all of it. And so I'm somewhat optimistic that in another three to six months, Solana will be a stable chain. Um, it kind of, it sounds a little bit funny t- saying that about a multi-billion dollar protocol and you could easily say, okay, great, Ari, they're going to be stable. Maybe that justifies a valuation lower than where they are today. But basically I, I think the team's executing well, the phone announcement I have no idea if that's meaningful. I think it does, to me, it suggested they're thinking about things the right way, which is consumer-focused, adoption-focused, long-term greedy. That phone is signaling to me we're focused on a five-year-plus plan, right? This is not about pumping our token over the next two months. This is we're investing for the five- to ten-year plan, and I think that that signaling matters. It matters to institutional investors, to devs, to builders, to the community, right? That this is, um, not only are they not dead, right? This is a time when people are asking, they're like kicking bodies in crypto, right? Which firms are not dead? And everyone's saying, we're alive, we're alive. And a lot of them are lying, right? And we know they're lying. And we know that there's a lot of um, insolvencies that are, you know, skeletons in closets and just lost momentum, right? Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of funds that are going to wind down over the next two, three years, not because they have to, but because... They're 80% underwater. They just made a lot of money last year. Why stay open yeah. when you can't attract talent? Can't you know? Um, and they don't have to, right? If they want to stay in the game, they can, and they can earn their way out and all that. My point though is that like that's coming, and uh, more insolvencies from exchanges are coming, and and d- developers abandoning protocols is coming. Yes. Just you know, you have a protocol where the usage fell by 99%. You've got 9,000 daily active users. 
you're going to have fewer developers. You're going to have fewer people devoting their time and effort yeah. to trying to make something better that's a ghost town, right? Um, and so, I, you know, there, there's so many social factors that are sprinkled in there as well, where like, let's say the developer has already made life changing money and sprinkle in that the community is lambasting them every day and like, you know, throwing rocks at them. It makes the incentive very, very small for builders to keep building unless they're super, you know, just aligned vision wise, which I would say the, the last year of Bullmark usually att didn't attract that type of person that the type of person was attracted likely three years ago, four years ago, five years ago. Totally. Absolutely. Um, Ethereum, I, I'm trying to get an informed opinion on the merge uh, in terms of, you know, do I agree with the developers that it looks like it's going to go smoothly? I have no opinion at the moment. Um, it does seem promising, at least two months ago. I put it at 50-50, or frankly worse. I thought, it, I thought it was a third it would get delayed, a third it would launch on time and go very badly. Uh, and that was based on, like, nothing. That was mm -hmm. a guess. I'm not, I wasn't, like, putting that. I wasn't trying to flutter anything. That was just in my head. Um, and, and now the latest info coming out of the Ethereum dev community and the test nets and all that uh, seems, basically it seems like they've gotten slashing working consistently. Things seem pretty robust. Um, so I, I, I have no insight to offer your listeners, but mm -hmm. if, if the merge goes roughly on time and smoothly, um, I think Ethereum's in a great position heading into next cycle, but not so strong a position that they won't face the same competition as usual from alt ones like Solana and like other newer entrants. Um, so I, I, I think Ethereum's in a really healthy place, but I don't think we're going to see... It, maybe you get a brief consolidation narrative for 6 or 12 months, for example, coming out of the merge. That wouldn't shock me. But if, for example, Ethereum was flying and every other alt-layer one was like getting hammered in price, I'd be looking to buy the beaten-up alt-ones because I don't think that's sustainable. Um, there is fundamental value in some other ecosystems in many layers, including just tech innovation uh, and... And there's such incentive to like not stop fighting. So I, I don't think we're going to be in a like Ethereum is the smart contract platform next cycle any more than we were when we started this last bull cycle, right? Which we kind of started there. It was like yep. all the 2017 ETH killers had died and it seemed like it was kind of ETH's room to run. And then, you know, Ethereum faced the annoyances of both the new set of, of alt ones like Solana, as well as a few of the older ones doing some interesting things. So I, I don't think ETH is in the clear in a competitive sense but uh, i do think it's i mean the biggest problem is ethereum still doesn't have a scaling solution right so all of the layer two scaling solutions were deeply disappointing from my perspective at least yeah. um arbitum you know it, it's like this is the scaling solution and it launches and you're looking at two dollar per transaction fees like yeah. come on that's the layer two scaling solution and to use this i have to go through a crazy convoluted bridge it crazy. takes seven days to like get the assets back down yeah. yeah, like, and this is, I mean, first, no one who isn't crypto native is ever touching that and should yeah. never touch that. And so you're a crypto native person who deals with the delays and the UX and the, the, the extra risk of navigating with this, you know, MetaMask interface, whatever. And then it's for $2 transaction fees, you know, just terrible. And I'm not saying the project's bad or the team's bad. It's hard engineering. You know, uh, I'm the non-technical guy, I'm, I'm, but I respect how hard mm -hmm. the engineering is. So this isn't meant as a criticism. It's just, it's just reality, which is... There is still no scaling solution in sight for Ethereum. And uh, a top performing token recently is Matic, partly for that reason that Matic um, is filling a critical role as a kind of sidechain scaling. I, I'm actually yeah, not sure. I'm ignorant of the current politics. I know mm -hmm. there's some politics around is it a layer two or a sidechain. I'm not trying to opine on that at all. Um, Matic, in my view, is another high quality project, another team executing. Um, so not trying to badmouth anyone here, but. Basically, Matic, you know, it's not an Ethereum scaling solution. It's an alternative solution, uh, whether it's sidechain, whatever you want to call it. It's a separate set of security assumptions. 
and it's being used widely because there's basically no alternative today. Um, all of that will eventually improve, but you know we're seeing how slow and disappointing a road it's been. I mean, if you know two and a half years ago, three years ago, the idea that we'd have to wait another cycle for a simple layer two Ethereum scaling solution that lets me do an Ethereum transaction for less than a dollar, um, I would not have thought that would be a four-year project. Right, because I, I remember in 2017 they they always went by different names. You know, once it was called Casper, then Shasper, then Serenity, then. 2.0. I mean, we just always change the name and move the line, move it down a couple of years. And you know, since 2017, it's been five years now. And the merge doesn't fix this. Not so yet. sharding no. does not. Um, sharding may make a dent on scalability. It's not a solution. Mm. So uh, we're still waiting on basically better Arbitum or, or zk rollup yeah. chains, or you know. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm frankly, I'm not super in the loop on like what the current hard mm -hmm. problems are there and, and how much longer it'll be before we get like an Arbitum that, you know, with a one hour delay and a two cent transaction fee, for example. So maybe there's a good opportunity that maybe we can take the clubs off and see. Um, I'm currently reading a really interesting book called Dead Companies Walking, essentially. It's, it's more from the equity world, but about, you know, not, not just shorting companies, but essentially companies that kind of overstay their welcome. And usually when they're publicly traded, you know, there is some liquidity where they can just keep operating for longer than they really should. Do you see any projects in the crypto space right now that you don't think will be here three years from now and we can throw in the caveat so we're not offending the teams that unless they restructure and like what they should could change a few different angles to, to explore this question one is the regulatory side so mm -hmm. i think this is becoming more consensus now but i i said this like nine months ago and everyone I think it's not so much that people explicitly disagreed, but like no one was preparing for this. No one like internalized it, which is that this entire industry is bifurcating into basically AML, KYC compliant and wildcat. Mm. So the regulators, basically what we've learned in crypto, we've learned a lesson that I'm betting will not continue. That it's, it's kind of a false knowledge. We've learned that regulation doesn't matter. So the most successful companies in crypto were the ones that were blatantly illegal yeah. in whether that's offshore exchanges, whether that's uh, a tether, whether that's, um, and, and when I, I use the term illegal, what I mean is violating regulation, yeah. not unethical, not a scam, not uh, even necessarily criminal. Um, that's a subtle difference, but there's a lot of regulations where if you violate them, it's a civil penalty yeah. that you're not risking jail time. I mean, so, Block One is an, you know, a simple case where you know they got slapped, they raised four billion, they got slapped on the wrist, I think it was like 27 million in fee, but like, 27 million penalty for raising 4 billion makes financial sense f to break the rules, which essentially, yeah. that's what the crypto industry has been taught. Yeah, and, and this is true of almost every crypto firm and company. Going back to Coinbase, I mean, Coinbase was violating a lot of regulations in its first four years. Um, listing of unregistered securities, uh, custodying securities without a custodial license. Uh, and a lot of this is not just understandable, it's laudable. So uh, to be clear, this is not a criticism. Um, you know, the, the f in 2016, you basically had zero regulated custodians, mm -hmm. partly because the SEC kept refusing to approve regulatory uh, license submissions. Mm -hmm. So like uh, one, one company I'm somewhat familiar with is Anchor Labs, Anchorage, yep. the custodian. And we, we just disclosure, we were investors in their Series A. So for like a year, they were operating under a North Dakota trust. And the SEC had said, basically, we don't view that as legal, even though 
the, the federal government said it was. It was mm -hmm. kind of a fight between two you know, different regulatory bodies, which happens quite commonly, by the way. And Anchor had applied for an SEC custodial license, and the SEC was just sitting on it. I think they sat on it for like two years before finally approving it. So, um, you know, the, the entrepreneurs like Anchor and Coin, or the entrepreneurs building these companies like Coinbase, mm -hmm. they acted, you know, basically they, they were providing critical services and infrastructure while regulators were getting their act together to approve the licensing that was needed and appropriate. Um, so it's not a criticism, but the point is that um, that was almost everything in the industry. Every big company, almost every piece of infrastructure was in at least a regulatory gray area or worse. What's changing is Europe is very serious about travel rule that mm -hmm. is getting implemented. I think it will start getting enforced within 12 to 24 months. Uh, travel rule, for those people who aren't familiar, basically every single transaction that happens has to include identifying information on both sides of the wow. transaction. Uh, there, there are exemptions for like very small dollar amounts, but it's whatever it ends up, maybe it'll end up being only for transfers over $10,000 or things like that. So I'm not saying, I don't want to say it's every single transaction, but um, in much of Europe, if you're trying to, for example, withdraw $15,000 from Coinbase in a year, you will almost certainly have to provide AML KYC info on the wallet that you're uh, trying to withdraw to. Mm -hmm. And if it isn't you, you'll have to get that from the third party. If it is you, they'll probably ask for some evidence. It's your wallet that you control. Uh, I don't think I don't I, I don't know if they figured out how they're going to do that yet. It might be as dumb as a screenshot that like showing it's your MetaMask wallet. Maybe it'll be signing a message or something. Um, but that stuff is basically the European regulators are serious. I think they're going to start enforcing it. In the U.S., it's less clear how this plays out, but. Um, we're, for, for people listening, the, part of the reason the SEC has brought so few cases is because they keep losing most of them. Mm -hmm. So the majority of the cases the SEC has brought in crypto that basically where the counterparty didn't agree to settle, the SEC either lost or is in limbo on most of them. Mm -hmm. So you have the Ripple case, right? A seven-year unregistered security sale, extremely blatant, letter of the law, there's no question. Ripple is guilty and it's, you know, it's as black and white as you can get, basically, and, and frankly, pretty egregious. And there's massive customer losses, including ones generated from sales by uh, the team just a year or two ago. And the SEC is on defense. Ripple is countersuing them. Ripple is accusing them of corruption. Ripple is demanding uh, documentation internal to the SEC to make them look bad. And judges are approving it because there is enough there that um, bolsters Ripple's case that the judges are saying Ripple has a right to that information. Um, so the point is, the SEC is really struggling because they're basically they're going up against extremely well-funded legal teams, and they're facing jury nullification. So one problem is, uh, like there was one case, Hashlets. The SEC sued a mining company that scammed people, outright scam. Wow. People deposited money to buy miners, and and that same company sold a contract called a Hashlet contract that was a forward right to mm -hmm. the rewards mined. There's no question a Hashlet is a security. Like, like the letter of the law, it's extremely clear. It's a security. And it was marketed as security. Like mm -hmm. everything about this. And the company were outright criminal thieves who basically stole from the investors. And a jury still found them innocent because they said, um, hey, SEC, we don't think hashlets are securities. So the nightmare for any regulator is jury nullification, where the jury basically says, we don't recognize your authority as a regulator. Mm -hmm. And that's horrible because as a regulator, you're like, do I still have a job? Like Gary Gensler loses a case like that. And it's like a jury just told me basically I don't have a job. Mm. 
it's horrible precedent. It's huge egg on his face. It's huge egg on the face of the SEC as an office. And so the SEC has not been super eager to bring cases, but the DOJ and the CFTC, I think, are going to start picking up, and the SEC may or may not. But even if they don't, um, the DOJ can take down if they want. Uh, that's the Department of Justice. Yep. Those guys are so much more serious, uh, it, serious in the sense of scary. Mm-hmm. Like people get a letter from the SEC and they're like, okay, I've seen what Ripple did. I see, I've seen all these people yep. fight the SEC publicly and in many cases win. The DOJ just shuts you down yep. and throws you in jail. <laughs> like, right, I remember like Bitmax, they got like one of the guys got pulled out of the New York office, put in jail, like it's more intense. You actually get arrested. Because and, and the reason is the DOJ, basically the SEC's powers come from Congress under the mandate of protecting retail investors. Mm-hmm. And so at the end of the day, everything the SEC wants to do has to be enforced by a judge who's basically a, a public civil judge. And the SEC makes the case that this entrepreneur was hurting investors. Mm-hmm. And then the entrepreneur's lawyers say, no, we weren't. And so, for example, I'll, I'll use Arthur Hayes as a case study. So Arthur, um, God, I forget, there was a public plea deal uh, I don't know if it's finalized. Is it finalized? What is he? He's, he's going to spend like he's in, I th- I think a few he's months Miami. in jail. He's got like, no, I think he's just house arrest. Oh, house arrest. I'm yeah. sorry. You're right. House arrest. So I, I don't think that's necessarily the end of this for him. I believe other regulatory bodies like may come after him for more. But um, you know, if you think about like the indictment on mm-hmm. Arthur was a list of like what was it 28 felonies? Mm-hmm. It was a crazy laundry list. And as far as I know, he's not really contesting any of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe in a legalistic sense, but for the most part, he basically. You know, it, they kind of have them dead to rights. But the reason why we're talking house arrest and not 20 years in jail is uh, it, you think about his lawyers negotiating with the government. Here's a, uh, you know, charismatic, winsome black entrepreneur uh, who basically made money for everyone around him. His customers love him. At least this was true kind of six months ago. Yeah. Vast majority of people on BitMEX made money and are happy and were happy customers. Investors in BitMEX made money. Employees were happy. Basically, everyone was happy. Who's the victim? And so his lawyers tell the government, you put this guy on the stand and you say, this is an entrepreneur who deserves jail. Mm -hmm. And we're going to say, this is an American success story. This Mm -hmm. is a guy who, and I brought up his race just because this does play a little bit with a jury. Sure. Where, you know, here's a modern success story. This guy's a self-made billionaire and he did it by building a platform and a product that customers loved. He didn't screw anyone. He didn't steal from anyone. Where's the losses? Where's the harm? Who got hurt by this? This is government overreach. Very different when there's big losses. So like one thing I said last year was um, the regulators are going to wait for the losses. That's when they bring the cases because that's when they have a much, much easier case to win. So you look at something like a Celsius, a BlockFi, a Voyager, all of those are facing many, many, many serious investigations from state AGs about... I mean, even, you know, so it looks like um, plausible that no customer deposits will be lost for BlockFi. They still violated a crazy laundry list of financial regulations and laws, and they're facing subpoenas and inquiries from many mm-hmm. states over that, like violating state-by-state licensing around misrepresenting, a, a save, you know, something as a savings account. Sure. Um, but all those cases, like BlockFi's in so much better shape. If, if no customer loses they're just in a much better position, right? It's like, sure, maybe they'll, they're much more likely to pay a fine versus jail time, right? Whereas if you have customers who lost their life savings, you have people who are gonna testify to a jury that their life was ruined, they can't send their kid to school, their wife died of um, unpaid medical expenses Mm because they lost their life savings, you know, those are the people who go to jail, right? The people who, where the prosecution can, you know, 
put people in front of the jury whose lives were ruined by this person's behavior. Um, and that's coming, basically. So, okay, sorry. So to reel it back to the question. Sorry, sorry. That was dead cool. companies walking, what are some projects or companies, whether, it's, uh, whether yeah. it's decentralized projects or centralized, doesn't matter. But like, let's say in the next three or four years, let's just say in this. Sorry, yeah, that was a really long rambling. <laughs> uh, okay, so the point of Super all of that is this industry is bifurcating over the next year or two. And I think what it looks like at the end of that is um, most companies are going to have to pick sides, mm. meaning either you can be an offshore company and a small, you know, you're a four-person firm, you're all based in whatever, Singapore, Cayman Islands, mm. and you're under the radar, you know, and maybe you have a few U.S. customers, but you're probably not getting subpoenaed. You're probably not, you know, you're just kind of under the radar. Mm -hmm. um, and then you're going to have the big regulated institutional firms, and they're going to have to clean up. They're going to have to stop even, you know, the Coinbase's. Um, there's so many things they won't be able to keep doing that are outrageous for a billion dollar company to have been doing even a year ago around, uh, you know, I mean, they're facing a, I believe a class action lawsuit for, for over front running, right? They very mm. clearly have had insiders front run like every new listing. Oh, right, the listings, And yep. you can't, like it's not, you can't throw your hands up and say, oh, we tried, that's not legal, it's, it's a crime. You are legally obligated to run a sufficiently professional operation that that doesn't happen. And if it keeps happening, you either get shut down or you potentially face jail time for it. You're not allowed to offer those services to the public if you can't do so responsibly. So um, I would have, if we had this discussion two years ago, I would have said, I don't think they get in trouble in the next two years. Regulators aren't there. Mm -hmm. If coin, you know, basically all these, and I think everything I'm saying, like I, my guess is Brian Armstrong would mostly agree with what I just said. Maybe not in quite the way I framed it, but mm -hmm. I think he would mostly agree and say, yeah, and, and you know, we're, we as a firm are maturing with the industry, which is a totally reasonable answer, by the way. Coinbase couldn't have been what they need to be, what they need to be next year. They couldn't have been five years ago, right? The same way, Felix, you and I, in our first day starting our firms, yeah. couldn't have been where we are today and where we need to be in five, 10 years to be right. successful. So, you know, it's totally reasonable everyone needs to evolve. But so we're going to get the strict bifurcation. I think there's a lot of firms in the middle that won't exist. Um, I would go so far as to say, I would probably say 80% of crypto companies probably don't exist in three to five years. Uh -huh. I think this is going to be the sharpest like changing of the guard that we've ever had in crypto because the dollar costs to operating a company have skyrocketed. Basically, you could have survived the 2014 bear market with zero expenses. If you were a shapeshift, you know, you were like, uh, I love Eric Voorhees, by the way. Mm -hmm. I just think he's a really good actor in the ecosystem, OG of OGs. Um, you know, from like Shapeshift in its first bear market, maybe he had a few employees, hardly any compliance costs, you know, very simple operations. Yep. You know, now to, to survive a bear market, I, I mean, look at it this way, just the regulatory inquiries. Um, if you're a crypto fund that's done VC style investing, you likely have a few SEC subpoenas on your plate about your portfolio companies. Mm. And just responding to those yeah. is hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal yeah. fees. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I've, I've seen the operational cost of, of, of crypto funds itself like go up tremendously the last few years. When, when we first started, um, an annual audit was maybe like $15,000. Today, it's north of $100,000. And, you know, so that also means that the, the new ones trying to start up, like the, the bear of entry is rising. And then, of course, also the cost of staying in business is, is rising. And that's not even getting to the more intense part that you just mentioned, which I've been seeing more and more often too that, you know, even in cases like I, I think was it Luna related? It might have been Luna related, but like again, VCs were also mentioned in the subpoena uh, or in the in in the court cases. Um, so that 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 that's interesting. Um, I think we'll see a lot of tier three and tier two exchanges fail. We'll yes. see a few higher quality professional ones act as liquidity shelling points. 
to a greater degree than ever before, and uh, at, to, and most other players will just kind of fade away. Um, I'm trying to think of other categories of companies that are likely to go under. Protocols? Um, I mean, I, I would assume like there's anything there where there's a ubiquity, for example, there was no need for all the DEXs that sprung up. There, like DEXs, NFT marketplaces, layer one protocols. I mean, there's just some stuff was very much copy and paste. Um, yeah, it, I mean, the tricky thing is just like in crypto, basically, if you don't have a Luna-like negative flywheel, stuff usually never dies. But it can if you're talking about dApps where you just end up with like zero users, especially dApps with a shelling point around liquidity, for example, where like you're really not going to use that DEX with three people, right? Yep. Like, why would you? Um, so, yeah, I would say that 99% of DeFi 2.0 does not exist in three years. 99% of NFT projects, those PFPs, you're yep. going to have a few dozen that survive. Um, that's probably like, that means probably 98% of them die. But what does dying mean? So the NFTs will still exist. There might, you know, whoever the bag holders are, one or two of them will try to, you know. Rally the troops. Rally the troops, keep a community going, uh, create the pretense of activity. Yep. And in some cases, a little bit of real activity, genuinely trying to impart value. But... There's also this thing, unlike the last bear market, 2017, you know, we now also have DeFi, which means a lot of these tokens that would have never been listed on an exchange, they now do have some liquidity from normal people that provide liquidity and like ultimately more and more of that. I mean, I, I watched, for example, the liquidity on Osmosis go down by like 90 plus percent um, beyond just market correlation. You know, it's just like people saying, oh, the rewards aren't as big, let me pull out. And then so all of a sudden you can go from a token having $100 million in liquidity to having $1 million in liquidity. And as that last, whoever's the last guy like starts pulling out, some of them will virtually evaporate, I think, in terms of like, and, and then the, and why does it matter? It's not just that there's a thin market. It also means, well, how do these companies, these projects keep funding themselves? Some of them are selling on the open market in order to, you know, create more runaway. And so that, that can turn to negative flywheel in itself, where for you to raise money from VCs, they're probably looking at, well, on the open market, it's trading at, let's say, a, 50 million market cap, I would not invest in you at 100 million valuation. But then if they're selling an open market, it only drives it lower. So it's, you know, we I think we we saw some of that in 2019, but not I, I don't think anywhere to the degree that we might be seeing it now with most liquidity for small caps, mid caps sitting on DeFi. I think a difference is that you had a lot of projects launch a product this last year very quickly. Um, the whole DAP, you know, DeFi 2.0 is just the simplest kind of category for mm -hmm. that so many dApps launched and the problem that's almost the worst point for a startup where you launch a dApp actually Chris Berniski did a great little like half page thought leadership essay on this like five years ago four years ago where uh like the what do you call it the j curve so and he used ethereum as an example at the time where before a project launches there's hopes and dreams and the valuation could be anything right yeah. classic vc talk it's you know don't have a dollar of revenue or a dollar yeah. like the worst thing to do as a startup is have a dollar of profits because then people apply multiple to that yeah if you have no profits or negative profits uh people are much more much likelier to ascribe basically an infinite and multiple on that yeah so the worst thing you can do is you launch your product and it then has zero and it, it's like it works but it has zero traction zero product market fit where do you go from there mm. that's the most destructive thing to a startup because the team, right? Like, where do you go from there? What are you hoping for? Um, so I think most of those projects die, whereas the things that are more like a buggy alt one, you can help keep hope for a very long time, right? Yeah. As long as there's people working on it and a little bit of money in the treasury, um, those things don't die. I was gonna say, cause like not all the innovation needs to root from the team. They can always keep recruiting new people to build on top and then like, you know, 
it keeps on living through the projects being built on it. Like, you know, for example, like, you know, one of the chains that I don't think has a lot of value to it. It's like, like, let's say Harmony, for example. Harmony had a good time because DeFi Kingdoms, which now also is in the gutter, was built on it. But at the time, DeFi Kings was tr bringing lots of traffic, you know, billion dollar valuation, ergo, Harmony's value. And so as long as these L1s can recruit new talent to build on them, um, they'll be fine. And as long as they have the billion dollar plus valuation, they should have no problem in incentivizing new builders. Yeah, I mean, we, we see even, you know, stuff like EOS is, is a good example around. where still developers still around, still trying some stuff. Um, yeah, so, you know, stuff like that, very hard for it to die. Let me say something. What is something that everyone is worried about that doesn't bother you? And also what's something that no one worries about that worries you? Man, the thing that what no one, that's a good question. Uh, I worry about a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Not necessarily emotionally worry, but like, you know, um, I mean, I think most of the things people worry about are deserving of worry. Um, I worry less about hash power death spirals than at least the public pundits. I don't think that's been a crypto native concern mm -hmm. in a long time because we haven't had a threat of it for four years basically. But um, I think I, it's funny, there was a period where the Bitcoin maxis were like making fun of me for saying a death spiral could happen at all. I think I made the best argument ever for why it's not a pressing concern. And that's the, the literal math. Basically, if Bitcoin fell to zero, the cost of mining 2015 blocks to get to the next difficulty adjustment is low enough that a single firm like Coinbase is incentivized to do it themselves. Mm. Uh, I don't I don't have the numbers on me right now, so I, I don't want to throw out a number. But yeah, let's yeah. say let's say it's 100 million or 200 million dollars. Sure. It's completely rational in a pure self-interested rational economic actor perspective to basically provide bridge financing to get to that next difficulty adjustment so that you as Coinbase still have a business model and so your Correct. billions in equity are still worth something. And of course, you're mining Bitcoin at the same time. So it's not like, you know, if Bitcoin recovers. So it, the way I'd phrase that is it's very similar to a bridge loan to a firm that's having a liquidity crisis but is fundamentally sound and profitable, mm -hmm. um, meaning it, it's rational. It should happen. I think it would happen and the dollar amounts are small enough that you don't even need to coordinate. A single firm like a Coinbase could and I think would do it. And we don't need Coinbase to do it. There's like any one of a Anybody, dozen firms yeah. or a group of, you know, I mean, frankly, like you and I, Felix, and four other people like us could pull together 100 million to save the industry. Um, so, you know, that's something I worry less about than at least some of the critics and pundits. Uh, what I worry much more about, and this is something that uh, is not talked about, is not worried about anywhere near enough, is the fundamental security model of proof of work. And... I think it, it, this is a much more pressing concern in bear markets where the cost to acquire 51% hash power falls precipitously because as the price of Bitcoin falls and more and more ASICs are uneconomic, they start getting offered at fire sale prices. Super price, yeah. So you can buy S9s today on fire sale because so many of them are not you know, viable. And so, um, yeah, basically it just gets much easier to acquire a sufficient hash power stake to take control of the network and mine empty blocks. Mm -hmm. Why would someone do that? They would do that because what happens to the price of Bitcoin if someone mines empty blocks for two weeks? It's gonna fall, it's gonna fall hard. And so if someone can establish a sufficiently large short position, it could be a rational attack. It's a very expensive attack. So um, this this could be a whole you know hour long conversation, but <laughs> uh, to do it like completely arm's length a year ago probably would have cost 20, 25, 30 billion dollars because you would have had to buy 51% sure. ASICs. And could you even have done that? How would you have done that? You might have needed to build a new factory, might have been a two-year plan. 
But in a bear market, it's much cheaper because you can buy, you know, on the secondary sale, you can buy, I mean, you could acquire entire public miners that are in distress. We sure. may be about to have, you may Compass have, has been in trouble, right? There's a ton of public miners that may be about to go on fire sale as companies. Mm -hmm. And there's some world in which you may be able to acquire them basically at like below cost of their ASICs. So it, the, the ability to acquire hash power very cheap gets a lot easier. Um, but even if it doesn't, even separate from the bear market, I'm concerned that at some point over the next five years, this attack is probably economically incentivized from an arm's length rational economic actor. And if so, it'll probably happen. Uh, and it's unclear what happens as re in response to that. So, and like people like Andreas Antonopoulos say, we'll just fork the attacker off the network. Uh, that has never made sense to me at all in the sense that like are Bitcoiners really in real time during an attack going to form consensus on a new proof of work algo to fork to? And it's worth noting that new proof of work algo be will be completely insecure, completely, mm. where it'll cost basically pennies to take over that new network. Yeah. And if we do that, and that's the response to this rational economic attack, which will win, in that scenario, the attacker makes money, then it's just a question of how long until Bitcoin gets attacked again in the same way and has to fork again. And so maybe there's an equilibrium there. Maybe there's a sustainable steady state where it's like we just expect that every six months Bitcoin gets attacked, gets shut down for a week, and we fork an attacker off the network. That's certainly not what any of us are hoping for Bitcoin to be. And I, I have I've yet to hear a plausible kind of counter argument. And I'm, I'm hunting for one. But I, everything here, I'm, when I say that, with what I just said, there's a million people who will throw out three-sentence counter arguments. I've tried to dive into this pretty deeply with core developers, adversarial thinkers, and when I lay out the full logic of it, um, I, I was really hoping someone would be able to tell me why I'm an idiot, and so far no one has. Uh, so my, my hope in, in raising this, by the way, is not to FUD. It's, I have a huge stake in Bitcoin personally through Block Tower. You know, I very much want Bitcoin to succeed in every way, and I'm incentivized for it too. It's either I'm hoping people tell me I'm an idiot so I sleep easier, or if the answer is social coordination to thwart the attack, I'm very confident in saying that will only work with for planning. That will right. only work if things are ready and socialized and organized ahead of time. Because just imagine, I mean, you look at how many people Craig Wright fooled with his incredible amateurish kind of, you know, scamming. If someone like an Elliott Capital, these guys are like Wall Street sharks, yeah. really smart, really long-term greedy. They'll bankrupt countries over Jeez. a decade to win on CDS on sovereign debt. Um, you know, if those guys did something like this and did a simple disinformation campaign, co-opt a few core devs, bribe a few thought leaders, uh, the idea that in real time, Bitcoiners are going to know which side is the attacker and which side is the legitimate and are gonna to agree to a specific proof of work Never algo happen. that benefits yeah. like one set of miners, you know, no way that happens uncontentiously in real time, no way. We, we see how hard it is to even organize, like a core developer like Jeremy Rubin proposes the, mo the most modest Bitcoin improvement proposal, BIP, through the formal process, and that gets called an attack on Bitcoin and has like Twitter mobs up in arms. You know, imagine if this was actually an attack done by sophisticated attackers. Um, so my hope is that Bitcoin, and I'm, I'm this obviously, I'm not the guy to do this, but my hope was that Bitcoin leaders, people like Antonopoulos, Adam Back, people who are respected among yeah. Bitcoiners would lead, you know, and, 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 and frankly, I hope maybe this is happening without my knowledge. I doubt it because I've talked to too many people who would have to be lying with a really good poker face. Um, 
But ideally, there's 10, 10 of the biggest miners and exchanges and core devs have a plan and have it socialized among the 10 to 20 most important people to socialize it with, and they're just ready to break that out. Uh, but I don't think there is such a plan. No, I, I, I like that a lot because, you know, I've, I, I've been thinking about that uh, a lot myself. And like, like you said, it's easy to go down an hour long journey on that one just because like I write dystopian fiction and in that I in that future they used you know digital assets and you know I was thinking how could you take a monetary system down and like there are game theoretical ways to do that of course again it takes massive amounts of money but those amounts amounts massive amounts of money become more accessible in a bear market when it's not 20 billion it might be five or whatever it is and then there's many players actually that could do that um, even individuals, you know, like if Elon thought about buying Twitter for 44, well, that's not, not that much. The only question is like, you know, what, what's, what's the incentive for them? Where I think proof of stake, funny enough, is actually somewhat safer because the money you're putting in, um, you know, to acquire 51% will be virtually valueless, worthless after your attack. Unlike with proof of work, you can short, you know, you can short BTC and still have the miner, you know, to, to do the takeover and profit off the collapse itself too. But for you to attack a proof of stake system, you got to own fifty one percent of the supply, which the pure process of acquiring that sort of stake, unless you you, you game it with low, you know, uh, flash loans and other kind of like you know, social engineering, uh, would become very very expensive to do so. Yeah, so I think the, the like the first order analysis oversimplifying is. Let's say Bitcoin and Ethereum were both billion-dollar networks, and, or sorry, uh, let's do yeah, let's say trillion. Yeah. And uh, Ethereum's migrated to proof of stake, so the cost of being able to censor the Bitcoin network would be something like twenty or thirty billion dollars mm -hmm. of hash power. The cost of, in again, first-order simple analysis to do that with Ethereum, um, with proof of stake, we're actually looking at a third or half the coins, and that means you're looking at. 333 billion or 500 billion to start. And of course, acquiring that stake, you're gonna have to push the price up astronomically if it's even possible at all. Yeah. So you're looking at a $30 billion cost to control the network versus a 333 billion floor. And really, if you wanted to acquire a third of all Ethereum, you, you know you'd be pushing the price up multiples of that. Um, but, but where that logic does absolutely fall far short, as you said, is you know the critics of proof of stake uh, will correctly point out you don't need to buy the Ethereum to control it. So if Coinbase is custodying 40% of all Ethereum, then a single bad actor at Coinbase potentially could vote maliciously with that custody of Ethereum. A single hacker of a single custodian could potentially gain control of a third of the network. And if you gain control of a third of Bitcoin, you can't really do anything with it, at least not directly. So that's the argument against proof of stake, that it's not about ownership, it's about control, and it may be easier to gain control of a third of Ethereum than 51% of Bitcoin hash power. Um, I would retort to that that the same problem with Coinbase custody applies to Bitcoin mining, which is you have mining pools that can be hacked and coerced and bribed. You mm -hmm. have miners that can be similarly, you know, same issue. Um, and it's not necessarily more to, then you get into like a deep, not decentralization, but distribution question. You know, how concentrated is ETH custody versus hash power? Then you start talking about like ASIC manufacturing plants and factories. So I think the biggest point of, concent of, of concentration risk for Bitcoin is ASIC manufacturing. Hmm. That um, two and a half years ago was basically a monopoly. Bitmain single-handedly controlled that, that market. Bitmain mm -hmm. represented more than 50% of all ASIC manufacturing. And they were caught in, I believe it was 2019, putting kind of a backdoor in their ASICs that only got discovered like six months later wow. uh, with forensics. Um, 
basically hardware level backdoors are almost undetectable. You, you basically need to look at the electronics under a microscope extremely carefully. And what experts tell me is there's hardly anyone in the world equipped to do it. It takes immense amount of time. Uh, and even then it's not foolproof. And Bitmain, what they said publicly was it, it was like a partial backdoor that they never finished putting in. And the reason they were gonna put it in was so they could brick ASICs that had been say stolen from the warehouse mm -hmm. remotely, remotely. Um, but the point is, they could have, and maybe have, put in the remote ability to brick or take control of your ASIC, and you wouldn't know if they had. And there was a point in time, not that long ago, two and a half years ago, when the majority of ASICs in the world came out of a single bit, uh, bit main factory. Yeah. Today, it's not, as, it's not a monopoly, it's an oligopoly. There's a few factories now, but it's still a terrible risk. And if there's basically one malicious insider in two of those factories, there could be a backdoor in basically every ASIC on the planet. Right, and it's worth mentioning that like a lot of these firms sometimes are highly political, where Bitmain was heavily on the side of Bitcoin Cash uh, with Roger, and uh, I think there was one more. Um, and you know there was a whole hash wars going on at that time, especially as SV came to, where those two started forking out. So you know if they had a backdoor, and they could literally reroute where their miners are mining, that too is an attack vector. Um, you've been super crazy with your time. I got four more quick questions regarding more like trading and life and, and, and then I'll, I'll let you off. Um, I remember reading a tweet from you um, and I might call it mis misquoted, but this was, I think, at least it popped in my brain during the last drawdown in May of last year where you said something like, in the life of every trader, there will come a day when you'll find yourself curled up under your desk, you know? Um, and it's it's so funny because that, that tweet, someone was stored in my mind and I saw one of my analysts literally lying on the floor, curled up in a ball, and I knew like, okay, this might be the time to long. And so my question with you is like, with all this chaos going around, like in the last few years when we managed funds, you know, we've had things going like, you know, Ukraine, COVID, you know, Fed going crazy on the money printer to Fed, you know, going into an aggressive QT. With so many, it almost feels like navigating a, a, a you know field of landmines. You know, how do you find clarity in chaos as an asset manager and trader? Um, zooming out, so uh, a really big picture historical context. Um, there's very little in crypto that has surprised me, and I don't think that's because I'm particularly smart or, and obviously I'm non-technical. It's really just analogizing to, uh, you know tech markets going back to the 1850s railroads and even earlier. Um, basically just looking at how markets behave, how consumer psychology, investor psychology, going back kind of hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm a geek armchair historian, market historian, um, and I, I wouldn't even say I'm particularly good at that or, or I wouldn't hold myself up as an expert on that, but just enough to be like, like why would anyone be surprised at the kind of market action of a 2000 tech you know, bubble collapse like so many people have talked about that pattern playing out in crypto repeatedly, the psychology playing out repeatedly. Um, so, you know, for people to be shocked at things looting 90, 95% of their value, uh, you know, this year kind of surprises me. Or, or people will say like, oh my God, I can't believe Bitcoin fell 50%. It's like, how are you surprised by that? This thing falls 80% every few years. And mm -hmm. yes, maybe it's secularly becoming less volatile and maybe the next falls will be smaller. But to be shocked that this thing that basically falls 80% every few years and in the interim has many 30 and 50% falls did it again, uh, it was kind of weird to me. Like being shocked at kind of repeated patterns, I guess. It's really just a time frame issue. It's someone shocked because they're looking at like a six month time window or mm. one year and they're not. Same with Wall Street with real estate, right? Wall Street was like shocked at eight standard deviation CDO squared models failing. And it's like, 
because they were anchored to the last 30 years of data when all national real estate had been both uncorrelated and secularly uptrending. But it, it didn't take a genius to say, is that normal? Is that sustainable? Is that a trend that you can extrapolate forever, the idea that real estate just only goes up in a straight line? Or was that a result of government policies and subsidies and Fed money printing and basically this 40-year secular kind of bull trend in real estate? Um, so it, I don't mean to suggest that the stuff's easy to time. It's not. Um, it, so as a trader, it, it, you know, it, it's one thing to say, I know Bitcoin collapsed 80%. It's another thing to try to be 100% long at the right time and then not be caught off guard. But um, yeah, I'd say like when in doubt, zoom out and try to draw analogies. Uh, there's obviously a lot that's new in crypto that's fundamentally innovative and interesting and disruptive. But markets and psychology haven't really changed over 300 years. We, we change the structures and the products, but the underlying, but at the end of the day, humans are humans. And if you study the patterns of psychology and marketing and um, even like the marketing side, the way crypto projects get marketed and sold, the way NFTs were turned into vabling goods. Like I, to, I, I, uh, I feel like an alien with consumer goods because <laughs> uh, like, I guess I'm on camera now. Uh, this is how I dress, right? I'm not wearing a watch. Like when I wear a watch, it's a $20 Casio. And I, I like the reverse signaling of that, to be honest. I have an ego about it. Um, I, I am bragging about having a $20 Casio. So it's not that I'm purely above all of this. Um, I do care about it a little bit and I do signal the way I want to. But uh, so I've never been into branded goods. I've never liked the idea of like, you know, advertising for polo on my yeah. shirt kind of thing. Um, and so kind of coming into NFTs, I felt like kind of an alien who'd already studied them. And so I like wasn't surprised, but I missed the PFP craze. Mm. Uh, it didn't surprise me. I understood it. But I also didn't feel like I had any skill in picking which PFP yeah. themes. Like in hindsight, I should have asked, should have bought a basket of CryptoPunks. And I actively considered doing that in March of 2020. And the reason I didn't is so stupid. I make fun of this logic when like pensions say it. Uh, I didn't because I didn't think I could buy enough to move the needle for us at the portfolio level. They were like $40,000 each. I'm like, what am I going to buy like 25 of them just to get a million dollar bet on this? It doesn't even move the needle. Of course, if I had done that, it would have been a 30 or 50 million dollar. Could have been 25, 50 million, yeah. Yeah, so I, that was stupid of me. Um, bad logic and, and a little bit of laziness, frankly. Um, just, a, you know, it's a little bit of operational work to accumulate a basket of NFTs that I wasn't eager to do, frankly, at the time. That was like during COVID when everything mm. was going crazy. But um My point is, obviously, there's new things with NFTs. The way it was marketed, sold, hyped, the way the market played out. I feel like I was just watching a mix of the luxury watch market plus uh, like pink sheet stock shilling, like mm. just kind of a hybrid of that and like wasn't really surprised about almost anything. Uh, but again, not being surprised doesn't mean you necessarily make money off it the way you want to. But at the very least, it means you don't go broke on it. Right. So, yeah, I mean, hi history most definitely does re repeat itself. And even for me, you know, as an emerging manager, it's always been super helpful, like studying the past of financial markets, like, you know, books that teach about this year of hedge funds, you know, some of the biggest names in the world, whether it's a source or tiger, you know, like source, uh, like in, I think, 99, actually more truck millet than source, you know, they, they had to wind down temporary for, for a couple of years because they shorted .com, right? And so it's like, you know, I remember him uh, saying in one of the books that, um, you know, Priceline was trading at more than all the airlines combined. This is insane. They shorted Priceline and of course it kept going. And so like, you know, that's kind of the same lesson. There's a lot of people that probably try to short crypto in, you know, a crazy a parabolic bull market. It doesn't matter how right you are. 
uh, the market will still make you poor. And so it's important to you kind of, if you ever think about shorting crypto, kind of like wait for the, the actual trend to break. And, and even then you gotta be careful, are, you, are we still like in a bull market or not, you know? And, and the irony is that, you know, I think for example, like long short, which is something we've been doing a little bit more of, is something that I think has historically done pretty incredibly in sideways and bear markets like 2018, 2019, but it's also the very same funds that did long short that blew up the moment <laughs> the market turned around. I'm thinking like, you no know, Tetras, and there was a couple of others that were famous for like, let's say, shorting ETH long in Bitcoin. Um, it's a 24 seven market. So on a more personal note, how do you prevent burnout, maintain clarity and kind of like find balance, especially now that we're like five, six years into this? I learned this the hard way. I had never burnt out in life ever. So I frankly didn't really, I, I almost wasn't thinking about it. Um, and in crypto, the mix of 24 seven markets and frankly, the entrepreneurial journey of building a firm simultaneously, uh, I was burnt out by mid 2018, uh, a mix of the franticness of the bull market followed by the pain of the bear. Um, and I now gear a huge, a huge focus of mine is sustainability. In a personal sense, at a firm sense, I constantly tell my team we should be operating at 90% capacity steady state so that when things go crazy, we're well rested, we have our heads in the game. Basically, if we're exhausted when we go home on you know Wednesday at whatever, 7 p.m., and 7 p.m., come I'm, on, I'm, Ari. I'm, 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 hey, this is for listeners. I'll tell you, the, the honest reality at Block Tower is like we're, we're generally in the office nine to five just as a shelling point for yeah, like yeah, communication yeah. and meetings and planning. But the reality is like, I don't, I tell my team constantly, I don't I don't care when you're in your seat. Like uh, sure. any, anyone on the investment side, like, you know, my team, if, I mean, I mean I'm up at 3 a.m. if the market's moving, I sure. we all have price alerts on our phone. And so we're, we're actually not staffed as a 24 seven trading firm. Mm -hmm. And we never trade requiring a stop out ever. Yeah. Uh, we may have a stop in a trade in the sense that like, like, okay, I'm buying, you know, 2% of AUM Bitcoin here and I'm going to stop out if it goes to $1,000. But if I miss the stop out because exchanges go down or we have tech issues or whatever, mm. that's never an existential risk. Sure. And I'm choosing to run the portfolio that way because we're not properly manned for true 24-7. Um, and it, frankly, relying on stops in crypto, uh, oh, it's horrible. starting to get viable. Two years ago, I think you just couldn't because exchanges went down constantly. Yeah. And flat flash crashes, wicks, where it ends up costing you more than it saves you. 100%, 100%. Even now, I mean, like FTX has had great uptime, but would I bet my firm on that, that FTX won't turn off for a critical hour when the market's crashing and I'm therefore not able to stop out of levered longs? I wouldn't bet my firm on that. I wouldn't mm -hmm. bet my, my LP's full capital on that. Um, yeah, so I so I the answer for, for me, and this is a personal answer, is uh, trading smaller size than I otherwise would, to, so that my emotions and my mental and the the mental demands of it are a little bit more moderate. Yeah. That means I'm leaving money on the table sometimes, but it's like if if I'm sitting in a big trade, I have no life outside of that trade. I'm yeah. talking about a big portfolio level trade. I agree. Yeah, uh, I'm not. I can't do or think about anything else. I can't be building my firm. I can't be recruiting. I can't be researching. I don't have a personal life. I am monitoring that trade. And there's rare moments where that's appropriate. But uh, those are very rare for me. At the, and, you know, 2017, I was doing those every day, basically. And 
you know, I was all in every moment, was, you know, sleeping three hours a night kind of thing. And now I go the other direction. Now it's, it's all about compounding long-term. It's all about sustainability in every sense. I force my team to take vacations if they're mm. looking burnout to me. And I, like I'll, all the time I'll be like, when was the last time you took a vacation? So I'll be like six months ago. I'll be like, book something in the next two, three months. God, someone's like, got to force me. It's been five years. <laughs> I feel this, hey, this is the curse of the entrepreneur, right? It's, yeah. uh, it, so I'm, I, I've been working very hard to get personal leverage. I actually just hired an EPA, mm-hmm. like a personal assistant. Yeah. Um, you know, as we build our firms, as every entrepreneur should, you're trying to fire yourself from every role. Uh, that's still a work in progress for me, but getting closer. Get, I'd say I'm, I'm actually almost at a point where I could walk away from Block Tower for a month with my phone off and feel comfortable that I have traders, PMs, operation, you know, head of operations that every, I basically have the right people in every role where me being there might not even help, you know, mm. even in a crisis kind of thing. We're not, we're not there quite yet. So I haven't had a real vacation in five years either. Uh, I have taken a few vacations, but it's always been with my phone, you know, yeah, right yeah, there yeah, yeah. And, and ready to command and control, whether it's a portfolio emergency or a firm. But um, I'm working very hard to get to the point. I desperately need a true vacation where I can turn my brain off and, and not be worrying about, you know, if something goes wrong, I know I've got people smarter than me to make the right decision. One or day we'll best, have pina coladas on the reasonable. beach. <laughs> um, you know, because you said, you know, you're trading a smaller size and, you know, that lets you sleep better. I always note myself, like when I'm awake at night thinking of a trade, I, it's likely too existential and I need to down the size or if there's lever involved, you know, cut the lever. Um, but how do you how do you risk measure in crypto? You know, we just talked about stops a second ago. Risk, you know, flash crashes, you get wicked out, and then it's back up to it. Whereas shorts, of course, in the bull market, it even the dumbest stuff can 10x. Uh, puts pretty expensive to do recurringly, and a cash, of course, short. It's probably maybe the the lowest hanging fruit up but option that kind of works. Um, just keeping some cash on sidelines. How how do you view a risk measure in crypto? I keep it quite simple, and I, I frankly do this for Block Tower myself in practice, uh, which is, yeah, usually risk management means cash for cash. us. Um, that's not to say we won't do a pairs trade or buy puts if they're cheap. Uh, I'm always looking for cheap hedges, but generally in crypto, all of the hedges come with new risks. Yeah. So, for example, would I buy the 6,000 strike Bitcoin put on Deribit? So what that would mean is in the scenario where that put pays out, where say Bitcoin's at $1,000, am I confident Deribit will still exist to pay me out? Yeah. And let me be clear, Deribit, I have only positive things to say about the firm. Uh, that, that is not me suggesting they're in any kind of financial trouble, to be clear. Yeah. It's just a high-level heuristic that basically, like Bitcoin to $1,000, vast majority of the firm is unsolvent and goes away and is basically dead. And... You, you know, the counterparty, it's just the counterparty risk is very high in that yes. scenario. And my default would be that basically any specific counterparty in crypto probably doesn't exist after that day. And so buying put, you know, $6,000 puts on Deribit just kind of doesn't make sense to me. I would probably buy a few if vol was really, really cheap, but I wouldn't think of those as a portfolio level hedge because it's too likely that in the scenario those win, you're not getting paid out. Um, so yeah, the re- simple reality is when we're scared, when we're in doubt, we are going to cash and that cash is getting pulled from exchanges and we're pulling from every counterpart. I mean, like during the Luna week debacle, we basically pulled everything from every counterparty in every yeah. form with some small exceptions. You know, we had some trading capital on exchanges, but we were basically like, if everything dies in the next week, like we we're only going to lose five or 10% of our capital kind mm. of thing. Um, it, I think it's, th- th- here's how I'd frame it most basically. Don't take risks you're not getting paid to take. And mm-hmm. if you're taking risks, take it consciously because you're getting paid well 
to take that risk right then. I don't mean that it's a trade for 10 seconds. It could be that, for example, we'll sometimes invest in a small cap that is really hard to self-custody. Like maybe yeah. it's not supported by hardware wallets. It's not supported by Fireblocks. Basically, your only option is uh, either leaving it on a random weird exchange or something like a desktop wallet, which sure. are fundamentally insecure. Um, so in a scenario like that, sometimes, for example, we'll leave it on the exchange where we bought it because there's kind of no great alternative. And we're talking about like a, a pretty small percentage of our portfolio. Um, and, so that, and so whenever we're doing something like that, I'm saying, I know I'm taking this extra layer of risk. I'm taking counterparty risk I don't want to take. Uh, am I getting paid enough for that? And so an answer, a reason to do it would be, I think this small cap is going to outperform every other small cap we can find by 100% over the next six mm -hmm. months. And so I'm taking a 20% risk or 10% or 5% of losing these tokens because this exchange goes under, but it's worth it to me. So mm -hmm. it's, um, yet to me, risk management as a separate concept has never made sense. This is kind of weird to say. I have the title of risk manager and portfolio manager at UChicago. I have a lot of like risk management like credentials. I don't believe in, I'll go this far, I don't believe in risk management as a concept in isolation. Mm. Risk management is inseparable from investing and trading. And uh, I think firms that try to firmly separate the two get into trouble. So this is a point where I've argued with some of our investors and I'll, I stand very firm because I, 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 this is a very well-informed opinion. I mean, mm -hmm. someone can say I'm wrong, but I've spent a decent chunk of my professional career thinking about this, diving into it, practicing it, which is that um, the, the risks that tend to kill people you think about Wall Street with the 2007, 2007 real estate collapse, armies of PhD quant risk managers gave you the exact wrong answer, which was that these CDO squared structures are perfectly hedged. Or yeah. they, in, in some cases, people even bought CDS against them or they bought derivatives against them. Um, there was one famous TradFi hedge fund manager who thought he hedged his portfolio with a double short real estate ETF. Mm. And he lost money on the short because the double short ETFs uh, actually lost money in 2008 because they're terrible products. They basically yeah, yeah, yeah. are guaranteed to go to zero over time for complex reasons. Right, and so, essentially like they always buy high, sell low, because but right. just the rebalancing process. It's yeah. a rebalancing effect. So if you have excess short-term volatility, they trend towards zero, and most assets in a down market have excess volatility. Mm -hmm. So it's not guaranteed they'll go to zero, but it's a good baseline assumption. Yep. So my point is that um, it, it, I think the concept of risk management, except in its absolute simplest form, which is, what risks are you exposed to? Literally, what, what exposure? So if I have $10 million worth of assets on FTX, I'm taking $10 million of counterparty risk to FTX. That's not rocket science. Almost anything more complex is indistinguishable from investment analysis. Assessing the counterparty risk is credit analysis. It's basically credit investing. Assessing uh, smart contract risk so like the work you have to do to be a, a, to risk manage DeFi yield farming is inseparable from the work of, do, of being a VC in DeFi, which is you have to evaluate the smart contracts, you have to evaluate the game theory flaws, you have to evaluate the quality and professionalism and ethics of the team. Um, all of that work is inseparable from risk managing a DeFi yield farming position. And where people get into trouble is when they try to treat risk management as a separate discipline and they fall back on like stupid, simple statistics like VAR. VAR. <laughs> like VAR, yeah. Like VAR is a fine concept as one little piece of a dashboard. Yeah. But to manage to VAR, let me put this way. Any investor, fund, firm, whatever, that said they manage risk to a VAR limit, I would never personally invest. My, it, it, I would assume either you fundamentally have no idea what you're doing as an investor, or you've structured your firm and risk management to appease idiot investors, to tell them what they want to hear. And my concern would be that you're managing risk 
to what investors are telling you they want. Versus which is, actually managing it. Versus actually managing it. And the problem with that superficial version is what Wall Street learned in 2008. Mm -hmm. It's not hypothetical. It's you will blow up. It's, I mean, I, Frank, like, can I name, I'll, I'll name them. I had a public debate with BlockFi like two and a half years ago that was a friendly debate and superficial. This wasn't super long. It was, you know, five tweets back and forth. And they basically were saying they have really good risk management. And we, they, they, didn't, they didn't like go open kimono publicly on Twitter, but there was a little bit there. And I had a call with them and we went a little bit more into it. And they were kind of managing it in that kind of, frankly, normal Wall Street way of kind of a stat art. Like, what is the relation, what is the price of GBTC? What is its correlation of Bitcoin over the last two years? Well, the problem is if you ask that question prior to the start of 2021, it was basically zero and GBTC had never, ever gone negative. So any quant, any data, any statistic metric you used said the risk of GBTC going negative was zero because it had never happened. Mm. That was obviously nonsensical. Anyone who's ever looked at any, basically products like GBTC constantly go negative in right. TradFi. There's hundreds liquidity. of products yeah. like that. It's not even liquidity. Um, so REITs, which are kind of real estate yeah. versions of GBTC, they trade negative when they're closed end funds, whenever real estate falls out of favor, which is every five to 10 years. So very commonly they trade at 10, well, 20, 30% discounts. Not, nothing went wrong. It's just- right. Well, when I say liquidity, I mean more so like the, the inability to, to redeem, because if you could redeem right. on NAV, then this problem wouldn't exist. But you know, whether it's GBTC or staked ETH, kind of like similar issue where value goes in, but value can't go out. So then it becomes a market of its own that is not really tight. Like technically it's tight, but not really. You're 100% right, of course. So the, the redeemability of an ETF means that it's arbitrageable daily, which means that it will trade in line with its underlying at the end of every day. Hmm. And the problem with GBTC is there's no arbitrage possible. There's nothing that forces it to converge to uh, its fair value ever at all, period. So we have to hope that either their lawsuit on the SEC works and they convert to ETF, or uh, maybe we have to hope that Grayscale voluntarily allows redemptions under Reg M which they probably have no economic incentive to do. They're right. probably strongly incentivized not to. So basically we're hope we're relying on the good graces of grayscale for this thing to ever forcibly converge. Other otherwise it's kind of like betting on the relationship between ETH and Bitcoin. Like should they be correlated? Sure. You know, yeah, GBDC should go up with Bitcoin and go down with Bitcoin, but it doesn't have to. It, it's not impossible that over a year, like it's, it, this isn't gonna happen in a day. We're not gonna have a day where Bitcoin's up 30% and GBDC's down 30%, but that could, eat, I mean, that, that kind of did happen over a few months right. where GBDC fell 30% during a period where Bitcoin was up. I don't know if GBDC actually lost value in absolute terms in that period, but it could have easily. You mm -hmm. could have a period where Bitcoin's up 30% and GBTC's down. Um, yeah, I mean, I remember that happened with ETH because ETH -E was trading at like a thousand percent premium. Yeah. And, you know, while I think, I think there's like 2019, 2020, you know, as Ethereum starts going back into the bull run, ETH premium goes from like a thousand down to like maybe 130. And so anybody who had money in there, they thought like, you know, what shouldn't I be making money? ETH is going yep. up. Nope. It's actually going down because, you know, that thousands lined up to arb arbit, you know, and that's, that's yep. something that people usually don't check. And the only way to risk manage that is first principles thinking, right? So you, you have the problem, you can't use data when you have something that is two years old. And yeah. if you are going to use data, make sure you're using the right data set. So the right data set was all ETNs. And anyone who correctly modeled GPTC would have said, it's almost certainly going to go negative at some point. And then there was interesting work to do trying to time it. And I, I'll say I was off by a year. I was very confident it would go negative. I said that publicly, repeatedly. I thought it was going to go negative in the next bear market. 
Um, I was very surprised that it went negative in, what was it, February or March in the midst of a raging bull market and the Bitcoin made new all-time highs after that. So uh, often it's very hard to time the mm. end of these kind of Ponzi-type dynamics. But um, anyone who was surprised that GBTC went negative, like why? It almost, it means that you didn't spend 10 minutes thinking about it correctly. Correct. Correctly. If you thought about it correctly for 10 minutes, which is, this is an ETN, it's not arbitrageable. There's a lot of speculative money that went in trying to make money. What happens when that money tries to leave? Well, unless there's enough retail bidders to buy it all, this thing will go negative. And that, you know, now that we've had such gigantic inflows into GBDC, that is kind of sowing the seeds for its own negative turn. The, the pattern in markets in general with a lot of this stuff is um, money comes into a good idea. It's not risky at that time or not that risky. So doing a private placement into GBTC three, four years ago wasn't that risky because it wasn't a crowded trade. Mm -hmm. The simplest way to phrase it is a crowded trade. Um, by the time, you know, two months before it went negative, it was a super crowded trade, right? There were billions and billions of dollars that desperately needed to exit and wanted to exit. And so you were kind of picking up pennies in front of the steamroller at best. I mean, I remember I was on the phone with Grayscale and also PlockFi, which facilitated a lot of the lending. It was maybe June or May of 2020. I think it was May 2020. At that time, it wasn't GBDC. It was more ETH. It was still like very high. I think it was maybe 500, 600% premium, something along those lines. But I did ask them for, you know, can you give me a spreadsheet of like, you know, how much, how many people have done this trade that are still locked up? And it was something to the point of 99% of shares were still locked. So I knew that, well, we're looking at a very small float that is currently, you know, making this price. And then you have 100 times that hitting the market before I finally would get unlocked. So ergo, whatever premix is right now will not exist a year from now or six months from now. Right. Right, we, we actually did a, an ETH-E trade and we kind of got out just in time. It was at like a 14% premium when mm -hmm. we got out. Um, it, I'm not saying that it was a dumb trade. I'm saying it was a trade and an obviously risky trade. Like when we did that trade, we're like, this is a risky trade. The premium could go negative. This is a trade, you know, it's like it's yeah. a trade like any other, right? Like we're betting that our timing is good enough here, but in no way is this an ARB or a carry trade. It's, it's a risky speculative trade, yep. end of story. And um, yeah, so very weird that, you know, to, to kind of frame it as like we had sophisticated risk management and we were caught off by like a black swan, there was no black swan. And, yeah. and I can't, I would go so far as to call it, you know, kind of intellectually dishonest to try to call it a black swan. Like at mm. least like own it, take responsibility. You, you know, took customer deposits, stuck it, you know, you tried to trade with it, you traded really badly and lost their money, that's it. You know, uh, that's what happened. Um, it, 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 I, I think that the, the excuse or the defense was we didn't understand what we were doing. Like, we didn't understand the financial side. We weren't trying to rip anyone off. We weren't trying to commit any crimes. We weren't trying to unscrupulously gamble customer deposits while misleading them about the risk we were taking. We just didn't understand what we were doing. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of best case argument for them, I think. Um, I don't mean to be too harsh. I don't think these are bad people, but like, you know, you, you when you get to the size, deposits. there's a certain level of responsibility comes. You know, we're talking not yeah. we're not 2014 anymore. It's billions of dollars, and you're being entrusted. You're not just entrusted. You're marketing to retail, telling them this is a safe option for their life savings, and then risking their money in in on basically gambles where if the gamble pays off, you get to pocket the entire amount. The incentives are so perverse. It's such a scammy stru structure. I'm not saying it's a scam or the people are scammed, but the structure is so scammy that to do to be anything less than a super scrupulous, ethical, careful fiduciary, 
um, you know, they, I think they deserve to get lambasted. And I hope that kind of stuff, it will come back. There's demand for it. Uh, the, all, all the, everything I just talked about with real world lending, I wouldn't have tried to do anything in the crypto lending space two years ago because it, it was too crowded with this kind of nonsense. Mm. You couldn't compete. The problem was, um, you know, if Celsius is going to offer 12% on deposits, kind of unscrupulously, right. and, and the, eth the best I can do to offer as an, in an ethical form where basically retail, like here's the, ultimately you can blame retail. Retail doesn't know or care about the riskiness. They're, they're not asking smart questions. They're not holding the feet to the fire of these people. And so what that means is if you're a scrupulous platform, you can't compete because you just look like a bad version of Celsius to retail. Yep. And so, you know, BlockFi is going to get the VC money. The BlockFi competitor that acted more scrupulously, they don't get the user growth. They don't get the VC money. They don't get the traction and they just fold. I'm hoping that there was enough pain on this that there's now room at least for good, ethical, viable, sustainable business models to enter and compete. But I'm under no delusions. Uh, next bull run, you're gonna have more Celsius, Voyager, BlockFi kind of nonsense, gambling on ethically- People flock to the highest number. Deposits. And yes, and to some degree, you know, I don't know. I, I, I spend a lot of time trying to save kind of retail from simple mistakes like that, that are, um, stupid mistakes in a financial sense, but of course, total, you know, if someone's a doctor, they're not gonna be a credit expert and they're not gonna spend 40 hours a week doing their own research on Celsius and Voyager. And that's reasonable and they shouldn't have to, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but I don't know, I'll, I'll keep trying to publicly educate and next cycle, I'm sure I'm again gonna be frustrated at, you know, the equivalent of Celsius shills telling me I'm just fudding and I'm, I'm evil for warning them to try, you know, trying to get them I to know. not lose it their is, life savings. But. It is tricky. It's you, you never make friends being bearish in this in this, this space, not even on a single asset. Like I, I was on a podcast recently and I, you know, I have my concerns with a lot of like the metaverse gen one stuff like, you know, Axie sandbox, just like you do. And, you know, backholders don't take that well because, you know, they, they have their own vested interests, even though, you know, there's a lot of points to see why that some of these things won't work. Now to wrap it up, uh, one final question for you. How do you see markets evolving over the next six, 12, 18 months? So kind of like, what's your outlook going forward? Um, both you know, the good, bad and ugly. What are you excited about? What are you, of course, real world ending? And what do you think is still ahead of us? Uh, so my base case right now is, and I think this might be consensus almost among traders, is that we're probably right now in kind of a medium, what I'm calling, I don't say I'm calling, I'll call it a medium term counter trend bounce. What I mean from that is we're still in a bear market structure in both TradFi and crypto. Um, we could bounce as high as something like 33K in Bitcoin within that bear market structure. That would be a little bit like the 2019 kind of bull April, market. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not saying, it, I mean, that was crazy that we went all the way up to like 14K yeah. and I'm not predicting anything like that. But point is we could get a pretty, we could get a three to six month rally here that's still within the bear market structure. Um, I think my base case is that it's shorter lived than that, that it's something like a two to eight week rally here mm -hmm. that I think has started. I say all that very low conviction and humbly. Um, that's my current base case. By the time people hear this, I, you know, Felix, you and I may have, have a different base case. So, um, you know, I, I, if you're listening to this, I wouldn't trade on that basis. That's my view of the moment, but it might change. Um, it's if macro is ugly if we see equities sell off 20% from here could absolutely see bitcoin to 10 to 12k if equities sell off 35% 40% my base case would be bitcoin back to 6 to 8k uh, and that's really I, I i'm not i don't think i'm saying anything aggressive with that that's almost just 
the correlation to macro and TradFi and equities, which my base case is that that continues. At some point, it may break. At some point, we may see equities down 20% and Bitcoin rocketing. Um, I certainly hope that happens, but I'll believe it when I see it. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, ba- that has never happened in a sustained way in the past. It, that may happen in five years, may happen in 10 years. I'll, I, I'm not going to bet that it's happening until it happens. Um, you, that's been a widowmaker trade that, no, this is the first time Bitcoin's going to ignore equities. Uh, and, and, and you don't see a path where the Fed is going to like ease up, um, especially with the dollar now having parity with the, with the euro and kind of like, you know, the whole dollar wrecking ball theory probably causing a lot of damage to emerging markets. Um, yeah, totally. Uh, so, I mean, could, could we just head to all-time highs in everything? It's possible. Um, oh, I mean, I guess there, there's layers between, you know, um, easing up under QT versus going to all-time highs. Yeah, but but like like, it, is it possible that the low is in in crypto and TradFi? Uh, yeah, I, I'm not saying it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, I, that wouldn't be my base case, partly because I mean, Bitcoin is basically two days of volatility away sure. from testing its lows. So just in a random statistical sense, yeah. it's unlikely. But um, yeah, so if you know, dollar reverses um, interest. It, so some of the inflationary prints are transitory. Uh, I, obviously, I, I anyone who's followed me, I've been kind of. I can't even say warning. I've been like shilling inflation for like four years publicly mm. that we're headed into this. So I'm not an inflation skeptic at all. And I do think we're headed, you know, we're in the secular path of currency depreciation. I fully believe all that. With that said, um, the most recent print, you know, it, the reason the market didn't react more negatively to the 9.1% CPI print was because half of it was energy and energy has already started reverting and there is demand destruction. Basically, um, there are certain fundamental kind of um, responsive things that kill inflation, certain types. So, you know, when energy prices skyrocket, people start driving less, they buy less gasoline. There's That's called demand destruction in economics. Um, same with certain foodstuffs, certain commodities. You know, if um, palladium rockets and it's being used in catalytic converters, car manufacturers find other things to use instead of palladium, and there are other choices. Um, so I, one possible bull thesis for both macro and crypto is inflation starts pulling back, the dollar starts weakening, we get competitive currency depreciation from other central, from, uh, well, from the US. Basically, the Fed feels a lot of pressure over the dollar strength and with inflation moderating that we get dovish Fed policy and then that kind of the economy is just doing well and growing and there's, there's tech innovation happening and drug innovation happening and all that. And so we're kind of back in growth mode. And suddenly the thing people fear is fiat. So I think this change could happen very fast where all of a sudden it's fiat is a hot potato, governments around the world are still printing it. All of those inflation currency depreciation narratives take hold again and fiat's a hot potato and everyone starts buying equities and crypto and gold and all that stuff. Um, I could see that happening. Uh, it, at the moment, it seems to me like TradFi macro is too weak for that. Mm. There's so many skeletons, like in the commercial real estate closet. Um, there's still a lot. I, I'm not in the weeds on macro. Um, I don't have the time to be. I don't have yeah. any real insight over you know Wall Street on that. Um, with that said, there's definitely a lot that's not priced in very transparently. Like commercial real estate in particular, you have, you have skyscrapers that are effectively trading at like 99 cents in the dollar that are fundamentally impaired that, you know, no, those those skyscrapers are basically never going to be full again. Partly, part of this is the shift to remote work, the yeah. secular shift. You couple that with the rising interest rates, and I think in commercial real estate we're headed for something like the 2007 residential real estate collapse, and that is not at all priced in yet. There are pensions that are going to be rendered insolvent because of the commercial real estate crash that mm-hmm. has not happened yet. 
how much of that is priced into other markets? So it's definitely not priced in commercial real estate. That's pretty visible. Um, but that's also not, I'm not the only person who knows that. Like the reason it's not priced in isn't because smart money doesn't know that. It's not priced in because it's like structural. You have a skyscraper, skyscraper basically these are not mark to market assets, mm -hmm. right? You have someone who owns a skyscraper, they're financing it with a bank. There's no markdown until something happens. It's kind right. of like VC books, right? Like most VCs have basically not marked their books down yet. People don't realize that many of the top VCs, their portfolio is down 90% right now, right? They're, they're, or they've marked down their books by like 20%. It's like, you couldn't sell this down 20%. You couldn't sell it down 50, you couldn't sell it down 80. Mm -hmm. Your book's down 90%, but it's gonna take three years before people figure that out because they're not gonna mark those assets down until there's a material event that they forces them to. So you get this weird lag where like people know that this thing is really 50 cents on the dollar, but it's still marked at 95. Mm. Um, frankly, not that different from, you know, Luna, like two days into that crazy week when like everyone, you know, we all knew it was unraveling. And there's a lot of people who, you know, UST still trading at 90 cents on the dollar. And like you and I know the jig's up, but a lot of the world doesn't. Like we yep. know it's probably going like not. I, I at least wasn't sure it was going to zero. Maybe it would get bailed oh, out again. And and I got an argument with people um, where they 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 did the same thing we discussed earlier. They looked at historical data and said, oh, but it's gone to ninety three before in the last main. It just bounced back. It's gonna take like seven days. Everything will be fine. I'm like, well, two years of historical data is not relevant here. Um, especially when the background is completely different. You know, you went you had maybe like one billion in UST. Now you've got eighteen billion in UST. And you know, we're also you were in a bull market, now you're in a bear market. So like these and, and so many more, you know, mechanisms to that, you know, the anchor yield reserve was running out. But interesting. So 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 to, to dial it back to the question, six to twelve months, so you said ba base case for you is we are going to go lower, um, but you don't completely cut out the possibility that, you know, if the feds changes their stance because the dollar's getting like, you know, too strong internationally, that, you know, people could shift back over into yeah, so I'd say I, I, I'm not making any three or six month long beta bets right now. Uh, I don't know. So I, I laid out kind of a base case. I basically said anything could happen. Like, like, like honestly, what I said if you deconstruct it was my base case is we rally for the next four weeks to two months yep. and then make new lows. But I said, you know, and then I made the argument that, well, maybe we just had to new all time highs and the lows are in and maybe we go to 6K Bitcoin. So I basically said nothing, <laughs> um, you know, to be fair. And the reality is all of those seem plausible to me. I don't know. Um, so a kind of my current base case is what I laid out. That's kind of my current trading roadmap at the moment. So at the moment, uh, basically since we hit the 17.6 low a few weeks ago, I've been trying to very aggressively play things from the long side, but in a very disciplined way. So um, like that night I got very long and then I ended up like taking tiny profits on most of it. Like three days later, I'm like, okay, I'm not getting the V-shaped bounce I wanted. Things don't feel quite right. The, the, the way this, I expected this to play out in a specific way, it's not happening. Let me kind of, I think in that case, it was tiny profits. In another case, it was a tiny loss, you know, buying 21K for a breakout and then stopping out at 20K kind of thing. Mm. So I've, I've kind of kept, and, and, and I think that's the right way to approach it when you get down to levels that deep that quickly. Um, but, but so basically I'm trying to stay nimble. I'm kind of being a trader yeah. and uh, trying to be nimble, but, but from here, playing it from the long side, Basically, my goal is to not get caught off sides too badly if we do get a move down from here to 12K. Yeah, um, I'm, the game. I'm fine taking losses there, but I don't want to get blown up. And if we do get the move from here to 28K, I want to win as much as I can. 
So everything I've been doing for the last month is trying to thread that needle, right? How do I do that? And it, 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 there's no simple answer. It's not like there's a derivative you can of buy. Course. or So it's about um, trying to find smart trading setups, trying to buy vol when it's cheap, create option structures. But there's no magic bullet here. At the end of the day, it's um, if I add skill as a trader, then maybe I can do that. But it's not like there's an answer I can give for... Uh, and, and, you know, as I just said, like, I, I think I've misfired like four times on that and just kept scratching out basically. Uh, so that, that was my risk management on this. It was yeah. kind of like be very disciplined on the entry. And if you get a good entry as a trader, you usually get the chance to scratch out or take a small loss, even if you're wrong. That's the benefit of kind of, you know, being really disciplined on the entries. Amazing. Well, Ari, it's been so great having you here. I'm de we'll definitely have to do this again, you know, maybe next year or whenever you have time. I know like it, it's, it's, it's crazy busy for both of us. Um, but where can people find out more about you? What's the best way? I, I assume Twitter? Yeah, Twitter is kind of a repository, and I, if I do an interview, I usually post it there. Awesome. So I'll, I'll share it below so people can follow you there. And with that, um, thanks so much for being on, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for having me, Felix. Maybe next time we'll have to... I, I guess I guess this is kind of us trading chairs, because last time last I interviewed, time you interviewed you, me. so maybe next time it'll be uh, you and the hot seat again. I would love that. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you.